Hello, visionaries. You have all been seated and patiently awaiting today's Sunday special edition. And in a couple of minutes, our moderator will introduce this magnificent presentation. But if I may take a minute or so to boost a vision for you's upcoming convention, I would love it. There is so much to look forward to, and there is electricity in the air. I'm telling you, people, it's crazy. But there is less than four months before this group of compulsive overeaters descend upon the Marriott Hotel and Convention Center at the Liberty International Airport. It's going to be packed from the way it looks, I'm telling you. That's probably why things have been off the rails this week with convention registration. I think that a record has been set. The emails, the phones, the texts have been just burning up, and I had to just tell you that we are so close to having three times more registered at this time than last year. That's almost three times the new faces, the joy, and the thrill of recovering pumping into our veins. It is going to be electric. We're going to be spreading out to all those around that may not even know yet that there is a way to recover. Well, today you can say that you have joined us too because registration, it's as easy as one, two, three. Everything that you need to get yourself registered and secured for this unforgettable event can be found on our website at www.avisionforyou.info. Convention registration, hotel accommodations, even a convention flyer to pass around to your face-to-face community. And on that website, a community bulletin board to speak about convention. By the way, be sure and check the community bulletin board because fellows are just chatting it up out there and they have rooms to share and rides to lend if you want to go that route. So remember, a vision for you convention, the power of the big book. It's September 15th, 16th, and 17th, 2017. Yep, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Meet you in northern New Jersey. Good morning, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. Today is Sunday, May 21st, 2017. The share IDs for Friday, May 19th, are for the 7 a.m. Eastern Meeting, 9956, and for the 10 a.m. Eastern Meeting, 9959. This morning, A Vision for You presents Love and Forgiveness. The big book teaches that to get over drinking, in our case compulsive overeating, will require a transformation of thought and attitude. The 12 steps as outlined in the big book represent a process of spiritual awakening, a personality change sufficient to bring about recovery. We submit to a simple process that is not easy, yet takes us to a place we've never been. The 12 steps particularly the inventory process of steps four through nine, give us the opportunity to recognize that certain ideas, emotions, and attitudes enslave us. We begin to see that these very ideas, beliefs, and attitudes govern how we act. The program of recovery, the 12 steps, are a specific method for producing a personal transformation, a gift that instills in us a new perspective. The big book says we are rearranging things into a proper perspective. Ideas, emotions, and attitudes which were once the guiding forces of our lives are set aside, and a completely new set of conceptions 
and attitudes such as love and forgiveness begin to dominate us. Joining us this morning is Sheila J., a recovered compulsive overeater from California. Sheila is dedicated to the 12-step way of life and to helping both newcomers and old-timers within the program of recovery. And welcome to you, Sheila J. Good morning. Thank you, Leah. Thank you, everybody, for being on the call, and I'm so excited to be here. And again, my name is Sheila J. I'm a compulsive overeater from Los Angeles, also a grateful member of Al-Anon. That's where it all started for me, and a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm so happy to be here. I am a huge big book fan. I'll be honest, it is the only material that I use when I'm sponsoring people, and I've been uh, exclusively sponsoring from the big book for probably the last 10 years. So I've been in Al-Anon for 30 years. I've been clean and sober and Alcoholics Anonymous for 29 years. And I was sober for about three months when I turned to a woman next to me. I weighed 200 pounds. And I said, do you think it's possible for somebody to have a problem with sugar like they have a problem with alcohol? And she said, absolutely, go to Overeaters Anonymous. And had I taken the direction that I got in my first Overeaters Anonymous meeting, there's a good chance that I wouldn't wouldn't even possibly be here now, right? Because the direction I got, it was a small meeting in Lansing, Michigan, where I'm originally from, and there were only about four of us in the room, as I recall. She was this beautiful African-American woman. I remember she had a doctorate in accounting, which I found so impressive because I was just finishing up a four-year undergraduate degree that only took me seven years to do. So I was just amazed by this woman, and she was tall and thin and beautiful, And I talked with her afterwards. I asked about abstinence because I didn't have a clue what it was. And she asked if I had any problem foods. And I said, definitely. Sugar is definitely a problem. I have a filling in just about every molar in my mouth. I've been eating copious amounts of sugar uh, from when I was very, very young and um, stealing it, hoarding it, lying to get it, just lots of nefarious things to get my drug. I said, I definitely have a problem with sugar. And she said, well, do you think you could not eat sugar today and just eat three meals? And I'm assuming we went on to have a conversation about step work. I'm going to give her the benefit of the doubt. And even if we didn't, the onus would have been on me because I was clean and sober and Alcoholics Anonymous for three months up to that point, and I'd been in Al-Anon for a year. So I knew how this worked. I knew that you came in and you got a sponsor and, and, uh, and, started doing exactly what was asked of you. But I don't I don't remember that specifically, but I'm going to go on the assumption that we did. But I know I left that meeting, and it was an 11 a.m. meeting, and I showed up at the meeting, and I hadn't eaten because I didn't know how Overeaters Anonymous worked. I knew you didn't drink at Alcoholics Anonymous, so I figured perhaps you don't eat in Overeaters Anonymous. So I showed up at an 11 a.m. meeting. Now it's over at 12 noon. I've talked to somebody afterwards. It's 1230, and I haven't eaten anything. So I went to a little restaurant, and I ordered a breakfast-type meal. This was a Saturday morning. And I remember it, it got put in front of me and, you know, the eggs, the toast, the this, the that, the little thing of juice. And I ate that meal, and I went out, and I sat in my car, and I thought, huh, no sugar and three meals a day. No, it's got to be more complicated than that. And I proceeded for the next dozen years 
to complicate the process. And the great thing was is I got a sponsor right away and I started doing what was asked of me. And that's a really powerful thing, and we're going to get back to that quite a bit because at this point in the game, I only sponsor chronic slippers. I always say I want the sponsee that nobody else wants. I want the person who's sitting in the back of the room and they feel like for whatever reason they have not been invited to the party. And, and I want to sponsor those people not because I have a messianic complex or I have any idea that I can do something that Kathy Joel can't do or Leia can't do or Mary can't do. No, no, it's not about that at all, right? There are many boats in the harbor. Anybody can help anybody. But here's what I've found that's really useful. Given that I had the experience for a dozen years of being a chronic slipper, why? Because I wasn't done. I wasn't done with the sugar, and I wasn't ready to feel the feelings. Yeah? Because I have that experience, I've found that has been particularly useful in sponsoring people who are chronic slippers. And so I found some things both from my own experience that tended to work very well and then things that I've used as I've sponsored people over the years. I'll be 17 years abstinent in a week or so here. So I've been in Overeaters Anonymous for 28 years, but I I only have, well, 29 years, I guess. But I just have, I'm just coming up on 17 years of absence, again, because I was a slipper. I just wasn't done. I wasn't ready to feel the feelings. And I had some pretty heavy-duty feelings to feel. I grew up um, in an alcoholic home. My parents weren't alcoholics, but my grandfathers were, both maternal and paternal. And there was a lot of violence that my mother experienced at the hands of her father. He wasn't even just a child beater. He was a beater-upper. And so my mother, as the oldest, and she had a brother two years younger, she got the worst of it. And she was really a wounded bird, really a, a troubled woman. Both my parents are deceased. They died young in their 60s. My mother died of diabetes, as did my 36-year-old brother, died of diabetes. He'd been diagnosed for 20 years. And then my father died of you know, some various ailment that had to do uh, with his colon. So, I mean, he had issues with eating, too. My father used to be overweight and then lost quite a bit of weight um, over the, the course of, of my lifetime, right? And so my parents were just troubled around food and having been affected by alcoholism, we were lower middle class in the Midwest and my father had gone to school on the GI Bill. But I always say of all the stuff that went on in my home, all the bad stuff that went on, the, the, the violence, the raging, the incest, the throwing things, the throwing things, right? My mother threw things, she threw dishes. I always say the worst that happened in my home was that nobody knew how to talk to anybody. Nobody knew how to have a conversation. Nobody knew how to say, hey, John, can we talk about what happened at the wedding? Because you said this, I thought this, it hurt my feelings. Is that what you meant? Can we sit down and talk about that? Nobody knew how to do that. So consequently, relationships rose to the surface and they never achieved any real depth. And then when chaos shows up, conflict shows up in a relationship, which is inevitably going to happen in any relationship, if you don't have the communication skills and you don't know how to go through that, one of two things is going to happen. You are either going to end up with a really uh, (laughs) 
a relationship that just has no depth to it at all, right? A, a relationship just skimming along the surface or people are going to cut and run. And that's what tends to happen in, in my family. My mother and, and her her mother didn't talk for seven years from when I was five to 12. And I don't even know what that argument was about. And when my mother finally reconciled with her mother, we just drove over to her house. There was no conversation about it. There was no wailing and gnashing of teeth. My mother just walked in the house as if she had been doing it for the last seven years. She did the same thing with a best friend. I have two sisters right now. I'm the youngest of five. Again, that oldest brother is deceased. But my two sisters haven't gotten along since 19, uh, not 19, since 2004 when my mother died. And they're fighting over my mother's dead jewelry, right? So that's the kind of chaos that I came from, right? And again, remember, the most important thing is didn't learn that essential skill of how to have a conversation. I didn't know how to do that. So I was a very troubled young woman myself. And I came into my first 12-step meetings, and I loved it right from the beginning, every single one of them, the three different programs. I loved it. I loved it here right from the beginning. And I was really lucky, you know, growing up in that crazy home that I did, I got very, very clear about following direction, you know. I don't argue with sponsors or cops. I don't. So when somebody tells me to do something, I do it. And Somebody, and it's the same thing I tell the people that I sponsor. You can call it a suggestion if you want. You do whatever you want. But this big book is full of all kinds of direction. We're going to talk about a few little pieces that mean the most to me here. But um, you can call it whatever you want. Call them butterflies. But the reality is when I ask somebody to do something, I have an expectation that the person is going to do it. Because I know this from my own experience and from sponsoring the the few people that come along who are really done, that they just don't argue. I'm, I'm not here to argue with anybody. I'm not here to debate with anybody. I'm not. I'm real clear that this works. 12, I'm 53 years old and I've been in 12-step programs more years of my life than not. And it is without a doubt the most valuable thing that I've experienced on the planet. In terms of my priorities in life, God is the most important, right? That is the most important. Twelve-step programs are second on the list. I am third on the list because if I'm not taking care of myself, I don't have anything to give you anyway. And my sweet husband, Neil, is number four. And my husband's so cool. He's just a great sport. He's always like, woohoo, I'm number four, right? He gets it. He knows how this works, right? He understands. Everybody wins if Sheila's been to a meeting. And I go to a lot of meetings, and I do a lot of service commitments. I have five service commitments right now. And that wasn't my good idea. That was my sponsor's idea, right? It doesn't seem like a good idea to me at all. But like I said, I don't argue with sponsors. And, um, and I am so grateful that I got introduced to the big book. Again, they, they take their, and I'm, they probably take it seriously everywhere you go. But I know this. They take their Alcoholics Anonymous and their big book very seriously in Lansing, Michigan. And the first meeting I went into, somebody suggested that I read two pages a day in the big book, and I got a sponsor within a week. And the direction was, as you're reading two pages a day, and read the whole book, 
It's not just the first 164, and that's not even really, I don't even bang that drum in terms of it being the first 164 anyway. The reality is because Bill doesn't count his sobriety date until uh, uh, Bob got sober, so I count it, I always tell my sponsors, it's the first 181 pages that are really giving you the direction because the program didn't start until the two of them got linked up, right, June 10th, 35. Bill was six months sober. But so Bill knew, right, we, first word of our first step, Bill knew how important this was to be connected up. So, um, but the direction, again, reading those two pages a day, they said you're going to get through that whole big book in about 10 months. And then when you're done, read it again and study it again and again and again. It is a textbook to be studied. That I know. I have an appreciation for big book studies and things like this right, the very thing we're doing right now, listening to people talk about it, this is cool, and it inspires me, right, I dig it. I love giving the talks, I love listening to the talks. But here's what I know. My responsibility is to make sure that I'm reading my two pages a day in the big book, unless the, the, the daily work, because my sponsor has me reading and writing on a daily basis and doing other things, but uh, unless that, that assignment she's given me has me reading something else or has me reading a whole chapter. Other than that, I am reading those two pages, and I'll tell you what, I'm always highlighting and annotating. You know, I'm an academic at heart. I'm on my way back to a doctoral uh, program. So, I'm, you know, I'm an academic man, and they've done studies. You actually pick up more material if you are reading with a pen and a highlighter in your hand, particularly a pen, because then I can write little notes. And I started in my third edition in in uh in uh, 87 when I got sober and you know have a couple of those and then I have my my big one in my lap this is a fourth edition because it's nice it's got more room in the margins and things and I treat myself like a a newcomer every time I open the book every time I open the book and every time I go to a meeting and I'm real clear I can hear I can uh be humbled by the 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 holy divine communication and sharings uh, from a newcomer in the same way that I can I can get those those same blessings from somebody who's got a lot of time. I, I'm not somebody who runs around and talks about, you know, time doesn't matter. I think that's nonsense. Of course time matters. It doesn't mean that anybody has any more value because somebody has time. But what it does mean is that somebody has gone through an experience, right, a wedding, a divorce, the birth of a child, the death of a child, and they haven't had to pick up the food. That's really valuable to me. That means a lot. And I have a lot to learn from that person. I have some valuable experience I can share with somebody when I got married and, you know, I cut the, the, the bite of cake and put it in my husband's mouth and he grabbed the, the cube of pineapple that was right there next to it and put it in my mouth, right, at my wedding. I remember hearing over the years people saying, well, how do you get married if you can't eat sugar? When, what do you do when it come, comes cake time? But I'll tell you what, and I knew what I was going to do, and that was not eat cake, right? But I had been at a meeting 15 years before, and I'd heard a woman share how she had lost her abstinence at her wedding when her husband put a bite of cake in her mouth, and she uh, binged on her honeymoon. She gained 10 pounds over her two-week honeymoon and struggled for, for years to get abstinent again. So again, that, that just reminds me that when I have a sponsor who's saying something like, go to lots of meetings, go to those five meetings, get five commitments, I don't argue. Why? Because I'm going to hear these wonderful things. However, I also 
understand that there was a period of time in the 50s where there was a big conversation in Alcoholics Anonymous that meetings were optional, but steps were mandatory, right? You would come in and you would be assigned a sponsor and issued a big book. Okay, well, that sounds like people are taking it pretty seriously. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to follow that direction, right? So just so grateful for great sponsorship that had me diving into this book right from the beginning. And we referenced it, Leah referenced it when she was chatting a little bit uh, at the beginning, that whole idea of, the, uh, of the, the psychic change that Silkworth talks about. It's the same thing that, that Jung is talking about when he talks about a vital spiritual experience, right? They're both one and the same. It's that same idea that everything in my head has to get turned upside down, right? Ideas, emotions, and attitudes, which were once the guiding forces of the lives of these men, are suddenly cast to one side, and a completely new set of conceptions and motives begin to dominate them. That's on page 27, right? And at the top of that page, we have, uh, it starts on the, you know, at the bottom of 26, he can go, right? And this is referencing an alcoholic, right? He can go anywhere on this earth where other free men may go without disaster, right? That is, if he wants to stay sober, provided he remains willing to maintain a certain simple attitude. So I've had that highlighted and annotated in a couple different colors circled, and I've written next to it, what's the attitude? So again, see, this is where it comes down to, am I studying the book? Because I can, I can be in a workshop or I can be in a book study and I can listen to what somebody else's assessment was or declaration was. But for me, what's the attitude? I've written the word yes next to it and circled it and highlighted it. Because a couple times through, that keeps coming up for me. That's the attitude. What's the attitude? Yes. It is the only gift that I have really to give to God is that divine yes. Because it's not like, uh, I remember I went through a spiritual crisis when I was in junior high. And I had an aunt who was a nun. And she, and a, a wonderful priest, explained this to me. That if I have my hand, like right now I got my left uh, hand clenched shut. If I've got that, that hand clenched shut, it's not like God or love or the ocean or the power of the groups or whatever you use to... Uh, access a power greater than yourself. For me, it's very easy. I believed in God. I needed God growing up in my home from when I was very young. But if I've got my hand clenched shut, it's not like God is going to gently peel my fingers one by one to open my hands to place that gift, whatever that gift is in my hand. It doesn't go that way. I am that divine yes. I keep my hands open. But just like I'd heard somebody in the last couple days saying something, talking about some struggle they're having in their life, and they said, well, but in the, you know, whatever happens, though, it's just God's will. And I thought, that's not how it lands for me. I am in the effort business. God is in the results business. So I need to get in the boat, and I need to make sure I'm rowing. Um, And... I have an intention, I have an idea where it is I am to go, where I am drawn to go, where I believe that God would have me go. But if we go somewhere else, then game on, right? That's how it goes. But that's what I love at the, at the top of 27, that's, that, that, that certain simple attitude. For me, that attitude is yes. And as I go through the book, month after month after month, year after year after year, reading it over and over and over again and studying it. It is a text to be studied. 
I then continue to keep showing up. I keep opening my hand, opening myself up to a loving God, right, that resides within me, that great reality deep within, right? I get on my knees, not in supplication to a God up above, but cloistering to the God within, right? And I keep opening my hands and saying, yes, what would you reveal to me? That's my gift to God when I'm reading my two pages of the big book. It's not just something for me. It's not just something for me to carry into a um, meeting and share about and so that other as others can can benefit as well. No, it's not just that. It is it's it's that. It's for them, it's for me, it's for all of us, it's for my husband. It's for people that I encounter who aren't twelve step people. I might be the only big book somebody might read. So I, I I better make sure that I've got my my act together and I know how to behave in a vehicle when I'm driving. I always tell people, don't put twelve step bumper stickers on your car if you're still getting pissed off in your car and flipping people off or even going to yell and rant and rave and rah, 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 don't do it. Don't carry that message of what 12-step programs are about in the world on the back of your car if you haven't really done the work here and haven't had that healing happen, haven't had that psychic change, that vital spiritual experience where you get it that I'm going to address my real issues. See, I used to weigh 200 pounds. I weigh about 135 now. I weigh 135. I've weighed this for the last 16, 17 years. I, <laughs> I am real clear that even when I weighed 200 pounds, that was not my biggest problem. It wasn't. I thought it was, but that was not my problem. It was never my problem. The same two problems I had when I came in are the same things I wrestle with today. To a much lesser extent, thank you, God, for going through the steps over and over and over again, and I'll come back to that. But the same two problems I had are the same things I wrestle with now to a much lesser extent. I do not love easily, and I do not forgive easily. Those are my issues. You or me. Because if I don't love myself, and I can't forgive myself, what kind of a chance do you have, really? What what kind of a chance could you ever possibly have? Not a good one. Just ask my husband. So I take this very seriously, what we do here. And I don't know how many times I've been through the book, because that's one of the other great things, right? Nobody gets to be a hot shot here. It doesn't matter how much time you have. It doesn't matter how many times you've read the book. But, um, and the the only benefit you get out of being somebody who's been through the steps lots of times with sponsors and reading the book many times and studying it, the benefit I get is I get to realize over and over and over again that the most powerful thing I can do is open my heart and let myself be vulnerable and transparent and teachable, right? I don't ever want to turn into that curmudgeon in the corner with my arms crossed, right? Rolling my eyes either literally or metaphorically at a chronic slipper who's coming back again, gained weight back again. I do not want to ever turn into the curmudgeon in the corner. My job is to always show up 
for somebody who, especially somebody who's been banging their head against the wall here year after year after year after year, I, I, my job is to see them with new eyes every single time they come in the room or every single time they get on the call. That's my job, to see them anew. And, and it is this holy process of having gone through these steps, having been through this book over and over again, knowing that I will read my two pages a day and I will do my assignment for my sponsor, right, as I remain teachable, as I remain very clear that I haven't gotten it. I'm getting it, but I haven't gotten it. And that's a nice place to be. That's a really nice place to be. So again, what I was going to say is I don't know how many times I'd read this book and highlighted it, outlined it, and it's fun because I can go back to that third edition and I can see this, right, where I've done it over and over again. The paragraph at the top of page 63. It is the seminal paragraph about step three. And it's when we sincerely took such a position, and again, the antecedent, the paragraph before, the, the position is that God's in charge, I'm not, right? All sorts of remarkable things followed. We had a new employer being all-powerful. He provided what we needed if we kept close to him and performed his work well. Established on such a footing, we became less and less interested in ourselves, our little plans and designs. More and more, we became interested in seeing what we could contribute to life. As we felt new power flow in, as we enjoyed peace of mind, as we discovered we could face life successfully, as we became conscious of his presence, we began to lose our fear of today, tomorrow or the hereafter, we were reborn. That's a pretty powerful paragraph. I'm not going to have any fears of my past, my future, or right now. I don't have to, I don't have to fear anything. I don't even have to fear life after life. There's nothing to fear here. That's a pretty powerful promise. Don't don't let anybody ever try to tell you that you know, when we read the Ninth Step Promises, oh, those are the promises in the big book. This book is full of promises. I mean, it's too bad that when we come in Alcoholics Anonymous, we don't drink anymore because it would be a great drinking game, right? You turn to any page in the big book and whoever finds the first the promise, right, the, the most obvious promise on that page gets to take a drink, right? But we don't drink in AA, so scratch that. But this book is full of promises. There's a bunch of promises right in that paragraph. And I loved that third step. When that, that became clear to me, and that was probably 15 years ago. So, again, I was sober, what, 13 years, 14 years before that one really landed, and I'd read it over and over and over again, highlighted, annotated. That's how I know I need to go through this book over and over and over again. And talking about the power we experience behind the fourth through the ninth steps, there was a huge gift I was given right from the beginning in terms of wonderful sponsorship and just taking direction and having come in the meetings and loved that, loving them so much. Because, again, I came from this family where nobody was really talking to each other. There wasn't a lot of kindness and warmth. Actually, there was very little. <laughs> the, 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 the nun who was... Uh, uh, the aunt who was a nun, she was pretty sweet, but she she died. You know, she died when she was 50. She died of breast cancer. So she wasn't around for a long time. I mean, I just didn't have a lot of softness. I didn't. And my heart was very hard. I was very hard-hearted. It has always been a heart issue. Again, remember the post-it on the wall? My issues are love and forgiveness. 
how to love me, how to forgive me, so I can offer those things to you. I didn't learn how to do that. And then you put on top of that that I was molested twice when I was five years old and ten years old by family friends, two different family friends. So by the time I got into 12-step programs, when I was 23 years old, I was really a troubled young woman and in a lot of pain and in a lot of distress. I had been doing a lot of stealing. I had a period where I did a lot of shoplifting. I worked at a McDonald's in my, my first job when I was a freshman in college, and I would always steal food and give away food because I was the 200-pound girl and I thought nobody would like me. You know, when, when people came over from the, the dorm on Sunday nights and came into the restaurant and you know, the cute boy down the hall, et cetera, et cetera, I was always giving away food. I would bring home game tickets. Um, if we have time, we'll, you know, we'll talk about the, the amends that came up behind that because I always have had sponsors who, again, in a very loving way, I don't need anybody to be mean to me, right? I don't need that at all. Um, if being mean to me was going to solve my food problem, my father would have solved my problem in childhood. You know, we got belted really good in my home. Nobody ever hit me with a closed fist, but I've been belted any number of times. So I know that being hard isn't a solution. I know that it's about a softening and a gentling, if you will. And when I got to that first fourth step, right, and there's the three parts to the, the, the big book inventory, the resentment, the fears, and the sex inventory. And resentment is just a $2 word for I don't forgive you, jerk. That's all a resentment is. It's I don't forgive you. Hmm, I'm kind of getting a theme here, right? And how can you not for, forgive somebody um, and have an idea that you love them? Or how can you love somebody and not forgive them? How can you say that you love yourself and not forgive yourself? That's what a lot of us struggle with as we have been here for a long time and kind of going through the process. It is, it is the forgiving of self that is so difficult. But at any rate, so I'm doing that first four steps. And that was obviously my big ticket item. I was molested. And, let's just, and it was the second one that was the, the really challenging one, the really the worst one. So let's just call him Joe. So the three columns that we have on page 65, and then the fourth column, as it's clarified in the prose, on page 67. So it's a four-column inventory. And, and you take the story out of it. That's the great thing about a big book inventory. There's not a lot of room for story because you don't want story. I mean, I'm a writer. I work in the entertainment business. There's only a few reasons that you want story. One is to entertain. Two is to create the uh, catharsis experience that Aristotle taught us, right? And the third thing is, and this is particularly relevant in 12-step programs, it's the only reason I would want to be in the story on an inventory because I want to get people on my team. I want them on my team because I, when they're on my team, they're going to get it, that I did this right and Joe did it wrong. But see, if I want the transformation, if I want the psychic change, if I want the vital spiritual experience, those two things, one and the same, ideas, emotions, and attitudes are turned upside down. If I want that change, I can't be a victim. I can't be a victim. I can't be the one who was right and somebody else out there done me wrong. I can't do that. And I know that as a chronic flipper. I got very clear over the years. And then once I got abstinent, 
in 2000, I started continuing on the process. I mean, my I came in. I have not weighed 200 pounds since I came in Overeaters Anonymous in 1988. So there was a my you know my weight kept going down. And but that's a conversation we don't we're not going to have time for for that conversation. And it's the it's not an interesting conversation anyway. I always say the transformation that happened to my body is the least interesting transformation that happened to me here. The transformation is about my heart. It's always been a heart issue. It has always been a heart issue. So when I had on that first inventory, right, I the story's out of it. I resent Joe, molested me when I was a kid, affected me in all these areas, third column, and then that all-important fourth column that it talks about in the prose on 67, I am to figure out where I am fearful, dishonest, and selfish. They also reference self-seeking, but I always simplify it for my sponsees because self-seeking and selfishness seem similar enough to me that I can just keep it simple. So where am I selfish, dishonest, and frightened? Okay? So again, I'm doing this this four-step, and this is scary and hard, but again, I'm I'm really grateful that I just... (laughs) I so want, I so drank it in when I came in the meetings and felt the love and felt that you really cared about me. I really got it that you loved me and cared about me. And I didn't have a lot of experience feeling that in my life. I didn't. I needed what you people had to offer like I needed to breathe. So when I got sponsors who took things so seriously, you know, took uh this program, again, very seriously and required me to read the book and do the deal and take about a month tops to do an inventory, I'm really grateful that I have that training right in the beginning. And now I've, I've shortened it up even more with people that I sponsor. I say, don't take longer than two weeks. It doesn't take a long time to do an inventory. And if you're doing something that's taxing and difficult, like a lot of people think inventories are, don't linger. Don't don't dally. Uh, but I've never been one of those people who complained about how hard it was to do a four-step. It's much harder to not do a four-step and need to do one than it is to do one. So again, I felt I'd had this relationship with my sponsor. We were, we were I don't know, six, seven months, eight months at this point when I'm doing the inventory. So I trusted her. And it was hard to write this down, but I did. And I saw all the ways that I was affected. and then, But then I got to that fourth column and I had to try and figure out where was I selfish, dishonest, and fearful. Well, it's easy to see where you're fearful, right? You've been through, you've been molested. That's an easy one to get. But I didn't see the dishonest and selfish. So when I'm reading the fifth step to my sponsor, and she said she was very loving and kind and warm. And I felt very safe. And very, I was very willing to be vulnerable and transparent. All the things that the book tells me, these things have to happen, right? You have to, you have to lay everything on the line here. It, it gives us that in, in, in various places, right? It talks about we have to go to any length. We have to have a complete willingness. We have to fully concede to our innermost self, right? Those are just a few of the places where it's just bringing home to me that if I want what you have, I'm going to have to really dig deep here. 
So I'm reading this fifth step. And I said, well, I don't see where I'm dishonest or selfish. And she said, Sheila, you, you, and she, my sponsor wasn't molested. She said, you understand, you believe me when I tell you that I, I know it was really wrong that this happened to you, right? And I said, yes, I get that. And she said, is it, is it possible that if you continue to hang on to this pain and this trauma behind this horrible thing that shouldn't have happened, is it possible that it's going to keep you from giving in the world the way that you're supposed to give? Is it possible it's going to keep you from doing that? And I said, yeah, no, definitely. And she said, is that selfish? Is it then selfish for you to hold on to this? Well, I understood that. That made sense. So I could check that box. And again, the only reason I'm referencing molestation, aside from the fact um, there are a lot of people dealing with eating disorders. Um, this, I've heard statistics that vary from a high number to a frighteningly high number. But I haven't seen anything conclusive, so I'm not going to quote anything. But the numbers are pretty high in terms of people that have experienced some kind of sexual trauma that end up with an eating disorder. Okay, So the only reason I'm talking about this is because this was at the top of my four steps. If I was going to be able to deal with this and reconcile and come around the other side of this, everything else was going to be a cakewalk. Okay? That's why I'm talking about this. So I saw now, so I'm in the four column, and I see, it's easy to see where I'm frightened, that having happened. Now I see where it's selfish for me to continue to hold Joe bound, metaphorically, right? He was deceased by then. And, um, but I didn't see the dishonesty thing. And she just leaned forward very gently and she said, have you ever done anything to anybody that you need forgiveness for? And I said, well, sure, of course, right? I told you guys I did a lot of stealing and things. I said, of course, of course, of course. She said, is it dishonest then for you to not forgive Joe if you want forgiveness? And I felt like I'd been hit with a a down pillow hammer <laughs> right in the middle of my forehead. I got it. In that moment, I got it. I got that it was selfish and it was dishonest for me to not forgive Joe. Because again, remember, resentment in my mind, as I've been taught and as I've experienced and as it has been divinely revealed to me in my life, that resentment is just a $2 word for I don't forgive you. So when it says in the book that resentment, it'll kill us, well, that makes sense to me. Not forgiving kills. It's lethal. And it's nothing I want to, I, I don't, I don't want to go down that road. You know, there's a great poem, uh, <laughs> and it ends, the, the last two lines, it's by Murabi. And it's, I have felt the sway of the elephant's shoulders. And now you want me to climb on a jackass? Try to be serious. Well, that's what it feels like for me here in 12-step programs, right? So I experienced this profound transformation 
specifically between what happens between the fourth step, the eight step list, and the ninth step, right? And I'll get to that part of this next year. But I have had such a, a, a mind blowing hailstorm, hurricane of transformation and love and accessibility that has opened up in my heart and my life and affected everybody that I come in contact with because of 12-step programs. Do you think that at this point in the game, even though I'm sober a long time, abstinent a long time, hey, go away, whatever, any of that stuff, feeling the, the power and the the, the joy that comes with not controlling other people because Al-Anon has really taken hold in my life. Do you think then that when I have a sponsor who just a couple of years ago said, I think it would be a good idea for you to have five commitments at five meetings, sweetie. Why don't you go, why don't you go seek those meetings out and tell me? you got two weeks. Why don't you seek those meetings out and put those commitments in place? Love you. Bye. Do you think I'm going to say to that sponsor, I'm not going to do that. Or that I'm going to get off the phone and think, well, I'm going to have to drop that sponsor and get a new one. Because most people aren't, aren't going to require that I would go to five meetings and you get five commitments. I'm going to have to get somebody new. Out with the old, in with the new. Well, no, I'm not going to do that. Again, I have felt the sway of the elephant shoulders as a result of doing the work here. So I will continue to do the work. And whomever God puts in front of me for sponsorship, and I have more than one sponsor in uh, all of my programs except Alcoholics Anonymous because, quite frankly, it takes a village. And I like to hear what, what other people have to say. And it's not, it's not like, you know, people always say, oh, you can't have more than one sponsor. You'll play them against each other. I won't. No, I don't. There's nothing to play against. There's nothing to win. There's no game. There's no angle. The only angle is love. Whoever gets to the love first wins. You want to win in life? Get to the love first. You want to, especially driving here in Los Angeles, we just got the the title in the last couple of months. It is the most uh, uh, congested, traffic congested city in the world, right, in Los Angeles. You do this one thing. I heard a brilliant guy in Alcoholics Anonymous say this years ago. He said, if you do this one thing, you will never be cut off in traffic again. We all leaned in, and he leaned into the microphone and said, let him in. Let him in. You let people in, they can't cut you off. You forgive. You're not, you're not going to be held bound. I'm not going to be a victim. And chronic slippers are chronic victims and chronic liars. And I'm not speaking from a spiritual hilltop. That was my experience. And what was behind that is I just wasn't done. I wasn't ready to feel the feelings. So I don't, I don't have any illusions that I can get somebody um, to the point of willingness that they will jump in here and do everything that this book asks of us if if I could make people get this, my mother and my brother wouldn't be dead because in addition to their 
having the diabetes disease. They were also compulsive eaters like me. My mother was 240 pounds when she died. My brother was the other end of the spectrum. He was an anorexic diabetic who just ate sugar basically exclusively in his life. He couldn't stop. So I know that I can't make anybody get this. I can be a loving place, but I know that what I need to offer sponsees, these people that I work with, chronic slippers, in my mind, being a loving sponsor means, you know, always with love, right? The truth without kindness is cruelty. So I'm not, I'm not mean. I'm not at all mean as a sponsor, ever. Nobody who's ever been sponsored by me would say that. There's some interesting conversations out there from people who haven't been sponsored by me. People have certain ideas. I do workshops. I lead retreats. You know, again, people have certain ideas. But anybody who's been sponsored by me knows that it's all a love fest, but it is a love fest with lots of direction. Again, I love newcomers, but everybody wants to sponsor the newcomer. The only reason I wanted to step up and make myself available to chronic slippers is because I saw that people were sitting in the back of the room and I, people, I started hearing people say that they were having a hard time finding sponsors. People didn't want to sponsor them because they'd been here 5, 10, 15, 20, 25 years. Well, that's not how it works. This is supposed to be a safe place for people. It's already not safe in the world to be a compulsive reader. It is the only prejudice, but it's still actively sanctioned in society. There are sitcoms built around overweight characters because we still have decided it's okay to, to laugh and call somebody a fat pig or you know any of the nonsense. You, you all know what I'm talking about. So it's already unsafe out in the world. I, I refuse and I feel like this is what God has brought to me, right, is the clarity that I want to be of service to the people who feel that they can't get this, that this isn't going to work for them, that there's something wrong with them. And what I'm going to do, right, because the first chapter that I'm going to have somebody read is working with others. When somebody walks up to me at a meeting and asks me to be their sponsor, and, you know, at this point in the game, you know, people know how I roll. And, you know, we have some big meetings here in Los Angeles, right? We're the oldest and the biggest intergroup in the world, right? Obviously, always started here. So, you know, by the time somebody comes up and asks me to sponsor them, they, they, they know, they know how, it, how it works with me, how, how we're going to roll. And I have them read Working With Others. And I say, read it with a pen in hand. Call me tomorrow, right? Read it today. Call me tomorrow. And pay special attention, right? Once you've read the chapter, annotate it. Find something on every single page. The same thing I do now when I'm reading my two pages. Still, I find something on every single page. Sometimes it might be that I'm highlighting the same thing again or something new that I'm seeing for the first time, having read it for the 73rd time, right? But I say, go back to page 96 and look at that paragraph right at the top, reread that paragraph, and highlight and annotate. Write on that for 15 minutes and call me together tomorrow. Love you. Bye, right? And the paragraph is, do not be discouraged if your prospect does not respond at once. Search out another alcoholic and try again. You are sure to find someone desperate enough to accept with eagerness what you offer. We find it a waste of time to keep chasing a man who cannot or will not work with you. 
if you leave such a person alone, he may soon become convinced that he cannot recover by himself. To spend too much time on any one situation is to deny some other alcoholic an opportunity to live and be happy. One of our fellowship failed entirely with his first half dozen prospects. He often says that if he had continued to work on them, he might have deprived many others who have since recovered of their chance. Right? So most times then people will write on that and they think what I want them to get is, oh yeah, if if I don't get this, you're gonna you're gonna throw me away. And I say, No, 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 that's that's not what that's not what I'm wanting you to understand. What I'm wanting you to understand, right, is if you don't want to do the work, I don't know how I can possibly be of service to you. I don't. You have to give me something as a sponsor. You either have to give me abstinence and the work, or you got to give me the work. It's not enough for me, for a sponsee to just eat right and follow their food plan commitment, do their whamming, their weighing and measuring, if they're not doing the work. Because if you're not doing the work, you're not gonna, for one thing, you're not going to be eating that way for long anyway. You're not going to, if you're a compulsive overeater and you are eating reasonably, but you're not doing the work, if you believe what we believe here and you subscribe to what we subscribe to, based on the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, if you're not doing the work, you're not going to be doing that for long. But most importantly, you're not going to experience that transformation. Being overweight was not my problem. Eating pound boxes of seized chocolates for starters at the beginning of a day was not my problem. It's always been a heart issue. It has always been a heart issue, always. And um, and the, the book says that I made my eight-step list when I took my four-step. So that meant then all those names on my four-step are now on my eight-step list. So again, that big ticket item, right, Joe. So all of a sudden now it's like, really? Joe's on my eight-step list? I own amends to Joe? How does that work? My sponsor said, oh, sweetie, honey. You don't owe Joe an amends, and you're not going to be sending anything to Joe or anything like that. She said, but you need to get transformed around Joe. And the way you do that is we're going to put him on that eight-step list. And then my sponsor, because we don't get a lot of direction in the book about how to make amends, right? There isn't a lot of direction, a lot of direction. You are dependent upon a lineage of good sponsorship. Make sure your sponsor has a sponsor who has a sponsor. And um, so my sponsor was big on letter writing. And so she said, you're going to write a letter to Joe. And these were all the letters. I did all this. But there are four parts to the letter. And um, and it's simple. Keep the story out of it. And again, she said, you're not going to be sending this to Joe. Don't worry. You're going to put a copy in your God box that had already been introduced to me, the idea of what a God box was can be something as ornate as something I've created or a tissue box, right? But it's things that I'm turning over to God. She said, but you're going to put a copy in your God box and give me a copy. I'm going to put one in mine. She said, but there are four parts of the letter. Dear Joe, I forgive you for having molested me when I was 10 years old. Please forgive me for not having forgiven you for having done that 14 years ago. Then she said, write something nice about Joe. Because just like you are more than your worst moments, 
Joe is more than his. So write something nice about Joe. And that was easy to do. He was a family friend. So I I remembered he used to bring me the wheat pennies, right? Nobody under 30 is going to know what I'm talking about, but (laughs) they used to have pennies that had a wheat, a couple of pieces of wheat on the back of them. And he would always bring me the wheat pennies. And then she said, the fourth part of the letter is sign off as high as you can go. And there's nothing higher than love. And it's all going to come out in the wash at the end. But if you don't feel like you can do it, you're not ready to act as if, right? You're not ready to act your way into right thinking. You know, 12-step programs are behavioral programs that turn into cognitive ones, right? We change the behavior and it shifts our thinking. She said, but if you're not ready to sign off with love, sign sincerely, cheers, best, and then sign your name and date it. And... um And I did that, again, because I'm not going to argue with a sponsor. And I read that letter to her. And I don't know when it happened. You know, it it tells us when we're, we're reading our fifth step in the book, it says to take an hour. Once you've read a fifth step to a sponsor, make sure you take an hour. Um, to kind of process what it is you just you just experienced, and I, you know, I'll be honest, I've probably done 40, 45 four steps over the years in my in my different programs, and I've you know probably only taken that hour maybe maybe half the time. I haven't done it every time. I should, but uh, but um, but it is really powerful. I've never had anything immediate happen. It's always been that three, four, five, six weeks afterwards, all of a sudden, I am behaving radically differently and I realize it's because of the work that I just did on a fourth and fifth step that I read to somebody right so just as we're heading home here if you just have another three four minutes here I having gone through that process again especially with that that big painful issue which had the potential to hobble me for a lifetime in every relationship I had with every man. I mean, every every boyfriend and fiancé that I'd been engaged five times before I finally got married. I Every man in my life had paid the price for what Joe had done to me when I was 10 years old. Every single one of them. Every single one of them. So, thank God I found my way here and had that born out of that painful family life that I had in my home, I had a real willingness and suppleness to open my hands and say yes to God. And so when I had a sponsor in front of me giving me direction, it felt very clear that that was God's loving direction coming through a holy person in front of me. Um, I am so glad that I got to surrender that pain and surrender that notion of being a victim. Because the problem with being a victim is that the world will continue to give you opportunities to be a victim. Right? I'm, I'm, I'm definitely clear about that. It rained on my outdoor wedding day. My outdoor wedding day and my outdoor reception. And remember, I live in Southern California. I got married on January. <laughs> my husband and I were engaged for nine and a half years <laughs> before 
we got married. It was the first marriage for both of us, right? I was 47, he was 53. We were just middle-aged, frightened old middle-aged people, right? <laughs> and there were, what, 44 beautiful, sunshiny Southern California days between January 1st and Valentine's Day of 2011 and one rainy day, and that was my outdoor wedding day and outdoor reception, right? <laughs> but um, I'm free. And this process has freed me. And again, there's another great story. We don't have time for that either. Just in closing, I just, I love Alcoholics Anonymous. I love this book. And when I sponsor people, it doesn't take long. I tell them we're going to work all 12 steps and it's going to take us maybe two to three months, depending on how much material you end up with on the four step. That's the only part of this process that slows it down is that material on the four step and how that translates to an eight step list and then nine step amends, right? And those letters that I, I have people write those very same letters. But um, the great news is, is um, there has been a transformation in my life and I every day will wake up and do the work um, on a daily basis because I want to keep offering that gift of that divine yes, my open hands, open heart, so that I can heal my heart and solve that problem. How can I love more, you and me, And how can I forgive me? And how can I forgive you? And just be about the business of God's will. And then it becomes so easy to pray only for the knowledge of God's will and the power to carry it out. Because whatever is asked of me, I will freely give. And I owe you everything. I owe you my life. And... um, it is such a pleasure to be on the call. And it's, you know, I, I about 36 hours ago, I started coming down with a really nasty cold and a really bad sore throat. And I'd already gotten to bed late last night. And I'll be honest with you, I never got to sleep. I, so I've, you know, I've been up the last 36 hours. And as it got closer and closer to, uh, you know, 5 a.m. my time when my alarm was going to go off, but it, it doesn't need to go off now because I'm awake and have been awake, I was just so excited to be with you. and. I have so much to learn from you. I owe you my life. You have given me my life. And I owe you my life. And I will do whatever is asked of me here. And it will be an honor and a privilege. So I thank you for having me. And uh, and that's it for me. Thanks. Thank you so much, Sheila, for your insightful and inspiring presentation this morning. Certainly a profound example of the power of our program and the transformation that is possible here. Thank you very much for sharing from your heart this morning. Sheila's contact information will be offered at the conclusion of this recording, so stay tuned for that. And we will now transition to question and answers. Uh, Please press star 1 to unmute. Announce yourself if you'd like to ask a question of Sheila. Jamie W. in San Diego. Jamie W. Did I hear Maura Z? Yes, you did. Okay, okay. Maura Z, thank you. Okay, next person. Katie F. Katie F., got you. Who else am I hearing? Karen A. Karen A. Judith R. 
Judith R. There's someone I'm not catching. Leslie W. Leslie W. Okay, let's stop with that initial group, okay? We'll we'll have another invitation, of course. Jamie W., go ahead with your question, please. Questions only, please. Sheila, Leah, thank you so much for um, your share and uh, your service. Sheila, uh, Joe, the letter to Joe, you mentioned a love piece. Can you repeat, repeat that? Sure. There are four steps in the letter, right? The first one is, I forgive you for what the bad thing you did to me. Two, please forgive me for not having forgiven you for the bad thing you did to me. Three, write something nice about the person because we are all more than our worst moments. And then four, sign off as high as you can go. And the highest you can go is love. So I've always signed off all my letters with love because I knew I was going to get there in the end anyway. So I might as well just, just write it on a piece of paper. Thanks, Jamie. Mara Z, your turn. Thank you, Leah. Sheila J, thank you so very much. I truly appreciate your share this morning. Um, and I, I've been taking notes feverishly. I do have a question, um, and perhaps it's better offline, but could you perhaps give a few specifics about what you do differently to sponsor the chronic slipper? Sure. Well, the, the big thing I do is I give people lots of things to do. I tell people, we're going to figure this out really quickly, whether you're done. We're going to start on a Monday, and we're both going to know by Friday because I'm going to give them lots of things to do, and these are not my good ideas, right? That book is full of all kinds of direction. So... I, like I said, somebody asked me to sponsor them. I'm going to ask them to read that chapter and write on it for 15 minutes. About 75% of the time, people will start explaining to me why they don't have time to do it, right? Or they'll say they're going to do it and they don't call me the next day. Or they'll call me the next day, but they haven't done it. So if we get on the phone and you haven't done the work, I'll ask you to do it again. It's not like we're going to then get on the phone and start talking about the job, the car, the guy, the career. We're not, that's not, that's not how we're going to do this together, especially as somebody who's a chronic slipper, who's got a lot of bad patterns, a lot of deep grooves and um, old patterning that, that isn't working. And uh, if somebody is not willing to surrender and do reading and writing on a daily basis, and I also ask people to make outreach calls, right, because the tools that we read in Overeaters Anonymous, those are not just perfunctory things we're reading at meeting. We're supposed to be doing those on a daily basis. And they're going to be writing this in an email to me at night. They're either going to be committing their food ahead of time or committing it at the end of the day. And if you're committing your food, there's going to be, have to be some kind of measure of, of whamming, right? Weighing and measuring. I mean, you, you can't tell me you had a cheeseburger and a bag of Doritos for lunch because I don't know, is that, the, is that the bag of Doritos you got at 7-Eleven or the one you got at Costco? And we've got to start paying attention to quantities here, especially if you're somebody who, who is overweight and you want to lose weight. So uh, they're going to be recording what they ate in an email to me. I get people meditating right from the beginning. Because, again, remember, I'm sponsoring people who've been here for years. And if you don't know how to meditate, just sit in a chair quietly for five minutes. Start there. 
and they're, I'm going to recommend that they, not recommend, right, lovingly direct that they find the meetings that they're going to get commitments at. So again, people are going to drop out either right at the beginning, they're going to drop out around a four step or they're going to drop out around the ninth step. And they're going to try and make me the bad guy when they do that. And that's just more of the victim mentality that, that keeps somebody from going forward. So again, what we're going to see, especially in that first week, is what their level of willingness is to do the work. Because if you're not willing to read and write and meditate and make outreach calls at the beginning, you're never going to get through what's probably going to show up on a four-step. And you're, you're definitely not going to, to be willing to look at your part and realize you don't want to hold anybody bound no matter what they did to you when you get to a ninth step. You're not going to do that. So we gotta, we're going to figure this out really quickly. And it's always with lots of love and kindness and joy. I never use inflammatory language like firing people. It's nothing like that. That's hurtful. You know, we're sensitive people and people already hurt here, especially if they've been watching people get it for years and they haven't gotten it. They think there's something wrong with them. No, 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 no. I want to help people connect the dots, that it's all about the actions you take. That's the only difference between somebody who gets it and somebody who's struggling. It's about the actions you take. So I want to help somebody make that connection. Okay. And if I can clarify one other piece, how often do you speak with that sponsor? Five Sponsee. days a week I talk to my sponsees for 15 minutes a day. So 75 minutes a week, 300 minutes a month. Now, with one of my sponsees, just in terms of scheduling, we can't talk. The, and then it's a floating call. They call me on Saturdays and Sundays, just outreach calls, just reaching out, connecting. Because it talks about on page 100 in the book that we walked with the new man day by day. So I know that there's daily contact is what is asked of us. But um, with this one sponsee I have, we can't talk five days a week based on her schedule and my schedule. So we still get in. We actually get in about 100 minutes a week. We just do it over the course of two or three phone calls. Because you got to give people time, right? i got to give people my time, especially somebody who's been struggling here. But they're reading. Thank they're, you very much. Yeah, we're, we're talking step work, though, when we're on that phone call, for, for the most part. Yep. Thanks, Maura Z, for your question. KDF. Good morning. This is Katie Apple, Recovered Compulsive Reader in Virginia. Thank you so much for your um, your fabulous share. And it's, my question is similar to Maura's, um, but just because this is just such a, a, a thing that happens and um, what, so you say you don't fire them, you say you're kind, but if they don't do that work, what do you do? Yeah, what I say to some sure. What I say to somebody is is I'm probably not the sponsor for you. Right, look, if you're struggling, right? You're drowning. You you've been you've been struggling here for years, you're drowning. You're 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 in the water and you're 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 drowning. And there are many boats in the harbor. Well if you get in my boat, you got in a red rowboat, right? And presumably you got in my boat. I'm assuming you got in my boat because you want what I have. So if you want what I have, I'm assuming then you're gonna do what I'm what I'm doing. Now, if you decide for whatever reason once you've gotten in my boat that you don't want to be in my boat or you don't want to do what I do or you don't want what I have, no, no problem there on my bad days. I don't want what I have, right? 
stroke, no problem. But then what I'm going to do is I'm going to row you up alongside another boat, right? I'm going to hold your hand while you're getting on Kathy Joe's catamaran, right? And I'm going to be blowing kisses while she's, whatever catamarans do, I don't know, what do they do? Do they sail or motor away? Whatever they do, as you're going away with her, I'm going to be blowing kisses, hoping you heard what I said to you about making outreach calls. And maybe you'll give me an outreach call once in a while. But what I tell somebody is, this is how I sponsor. It is not the only way to sponsor. It is not the only boat in the harbor. It is what I have found to be particularly useful with people who have struggled. But if this doesn't work for you, don't jump back in the water, right? You were drowning, and the sharks are circling, and they're hungry. Don't, you don't have to do that. Let me hold your hand and get on somebody else's boat. Everybody does this differently, and everything can work. I started doing the workshops because I realized that there were a lot of people who were continuing to struggle, and I I'd, I'd discovered some things with sponsors and, and got inspiration over the years that worked really well, and I wanted to start having a conversation about that. I mean, I'm a writer. I'm writing a book for 12-step press. I mean, it's I've, I've found that there are some things that work, and this is one of the things, to have loving expectations that somebody is going to do daily work. If you don't want to be sponsored that way, let's get you in somebody else's boat because there are plenty of people. There, you know, I know people whose sponsors require them to go to one meeting a week, and they don't have to have a commitment. Okay? None of this is my business. Thank you, al None of it's my business. I just know what, I, what works for me. And so, yeah, that's how it goes. Thank you. Mm. Thanks, Katie. Karen A., your turn. Good morning. This is Karen A. May I be heard? Yes. Thank you so much for your service. And Sheila, thank you for your sharing. Uh, I waited all week to get on this call to hear what you had to say. Um, I'm relatively new to the program. Um, My question had to do with the letter writing, and I had missed the part where you said you write something nice about the person. So thank you for clarifying that. My other question is I have had a deep resentment come upon me. Um, I did my first real serious 10th step on it, and I apologized. But I was struggling, having put the food down now, with mental obsession, obsessing over the situation, how it happened, how it hurt, what was said. And I want to know how you get rid of the mental obsession involving a deep resentment or a person that has has hurt you, uh, really, really forgiving them, other than just saying to them, I'm sorry. Well, again, this is probably a longer conversation and certainly nothing I'm going to be able to to answer here. And again, I'm not a healthcare professional. I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm not a therapist. But all I know is doing the process, right, just doing the very basic tasks is a behavioral approach to making a shift. And as I made that behavioral approach and did that work cognitively, something shifted, right? And that's just in terms of what I'm doing and what I'm thinking. But the most powerful thing is through that process, that divine yes, right, those open hands offering to God, yes, I am here, I am willing, thy will not mind be done, 
and that information about what to do will be communicated to me through a sponsor, right? So I'm assuming that is the loving voice of God coming through a sponsor. Just doing that work, then the transformation moved to my heart. I don't know when it happened. I've been asked this myriad times. I honestly don't know when I experienced the real freedom behind Joe and the other man who'd done what they done. I don't I did what they did. I don't know when that happened. I just know it's here now. And I know just about every person I sponsor is either molested or I even have sponsored people who were molesters. I mean it just because I have been transformed, right? So I'm not there's nothing there's nothing that's frightening to me about and I've heard stories that would just curl your hair. There's just nothing that's frightening to me about it because I keep showing up and I I know that this is what God would have me do is keep opening my hands, keep doing the work, and just let go. Just let everybody off the hook. Forgive everybody of everything all the time, as my friend Michael says. Forgive everybody of everything all the time. But I don't know when it happened. I just showed up and did the work. Thank you so much. That really helped. Yeah. yeah. You're welcome. Thank you, Karen. Judith R. Thank you, Leah. Thank you so much, Sheila. Um, now that you've... This is Judith R. in Vermont, com- Recovered Compulsive Overeater. Um, now that you've thoroughly blown my mind by telling us that you start on page 96, I'd love to hear what you do next with your sponsees. Well, then we start going through the book. That's just the first chapter they read. But then we start going through the book. I don't fool around with the forewords and stuff. That's great when I get when I'm going with a sponsee and when we work the traditions. Then we'll go back and we'll learn all the because there's just all there's incredible information you learn between the forwards of the editions and you see where we're really struggling in program because we yeah, there are a lot more books out there and not as many people recovered. It's and now all bets are off. We'll never be be able to track it anymore because we don't know how many books are out there because people are reading things online and stuff. But um but so there's valuable information there. But we I don't fool around with that on this first run. But we go through and we start reading, you know, doctor's opinion, you know, the the step one uh, portion of the big book is doctor's opinion, Bill's story, uh, there is a solution more about alcoholism, right? And we read we agnostics. Step two. So they're reading a chapter a day and they're writing every single day. Somebody starts with me on a Monday we're going to be on the four-step by the, the following Monday. And then they have two weeks tops to do the four-step, and I actually suggest that they get it done in a week. So it's just continuing to go through the, the, the steps as they're specifically outlined in that book. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thanks, Judith. Leslie W. Hi, thank you. Yeah. This is Leslie W. Recovered also overeater in Tennessee. Thank you so much for your powerful um, story this morning. And uh, I really got a lot out of it. Um, my question is, I think I heard you say uh, you require two things when you work with somebody. Either they're willing to put down the food and do the work, um, or they're willing to give you the work. My question is, and this is maybe kind of controversial because um, <clears throat> we hear a lot on the line that you've got to put down the food first and then work the step and do the step absently. My question is, though, do you continue to work with someone 
if they're willing to do the work but not willing or able to put down the food? And if so, how do you do that? Yeah, this is this is controversial, and it really shouldn't be controversial, right? And again, none of it's my business. Thank you, Alanon. But on page 31 in the Overeaters Anonymous 12 and 12, it's on the uh, the four-step four-step portion of the book. It starts at the bottom of 30 and it wraps around the 31. I think I got those page numbers right. And it says, look, we actually think that you should be abstinent to work a four-step. We really do. You know, that's where you're going to get the most benefit. However, if doing a four-step while you're still in the food is going to help you conclusively take a third step, then go ahead and do it that way, Right? So that's what it says in our conference-approved Overeaters Anonymous literature. And I'm not here to argue with anybody. I don't argue with anybody in 12-step programs because everybody wants to win, and we're hard-headed and stubborn. So I don't argue with anybody. All I can tell you from my experience is I started at 200 pounds, and I took the direction that I got from my first Overeaters Anonymous sponsor. And this was in 1988. That was three years before the first edition of that OA 12 and 12 came out in 1991. So three years before it even came out, I had a sponsor who said to me, I want you to work the steps, no matter what you're eating. So that's what I did. Because again, I'm not, I'm not here to debate or argue or figure this out. And I know that within two years, I had lost 20 pounds. And I had a father who was really bossy and mean and unkind and shamed me about my weight. He had three overweight daughters and he didn't like it. And he shamed all of us, but I got the worst of it. And I was the most sensitive as an alcoholic, so it affected me more than it affected my sisters. But um, within two years, I hadn't stopped eating the sugar, but something had shifted because now I'm 26 years old and I weigh 180 pounds and I don't weigh 200 pounds. And I walked out of a family event. I walked by my father. And again, remember, my father had been shaming me for a lifetime, but now I've got two years of recovery, three years in Al-Anon, two years in AA, and two years in OA. And my OA recovery was was just following direction. So I wasn't abstinent. I couldn't sponsor, couldn't do anything like that. But I could certainly show up at meetings and I could certainly do what my sponsor asked me to do. And I walked by my father, all kinds of family people around at this event. And he said, well, I see you've lost some weight, but you got a lot more to go. Don't let up. And I turned around in front of the 30 family members to my father and I said, no more. It's over. It's over. You do not talk to me about my weight anymore. It's over. And nobody had ever talked to my father like that in my family. And I was very clear that that was the recovery. That was the recovery I was capable of of at that time. I was not ready to feel the feelings behind having been molested and beaten and yelled and had dishes thrown at me. I wasn't ready for that. That is above my pay grade to think that I need to mandate to somebody, you need to be doing this with your food before we can work the steps together. That, to me, isn't how this has landed. And it's corroborated by conference-approved 12-step Overeaters Anonymous literature. And I'm not here to debate with anybody, to argue, whatever, right? Many boats in the harbor, many takes on this. Bill and Bob had radically different ideas about how to work the 12 steps. I'm from Michigan, so we were largely influenced by the Alcoholics Anonymous of Bob Smith. And Bob's theory was you go through the steps over and over and over and over and over again, and that's how you recover. And Bill's theory was the New York cohort said you go through the steps one time and then circle through uh, 10, 11, and 12 for the rest of your life. That was their idea. 
Both of them were convinced they were right. Both of them were right. Now, Bill changed his thinking on that. He talks about it in A It Comes to Age, where he realized, ah, there's a real benefit in doing uh, more than one inventory in your lifetime. But again, I'm not here to debate. I don't want to be right. I just know from my experience, I experienced recovery. And by the time I got abstinent, I weighed 155 pounds. So I still hadn't put down the sugar, right? I wasn't abstinent, but I had been doing the step work for years with my sponsor, going to meetings, lots of meetings, and I was, I'd lost 45 pounds. So something had shifted, right? And that's all I know. All I've got to lean mm-hmm. back on is my experience. That's all I got, right? So just hearing that you meet people where they are. I beg your pardon? About right. <clears throat> I hear is that you're, you're willing to just meet people where they are. If you do the work. It's God's business. It's God's business to get somebody abstinent. If I could get people abstinent, if I could get people to put down the food and lose the weight, I'd write a book, sell it, be best friends with Oprah, probably, right? That's what I'd do. I don't have that power. That's above my pay grade. Mm-hmm. It's above my pay grade. I'm not a healthcare professional. Like I said, I have heard stories that would curl your hair. You can't I can't mandate to anybody you need to be ready to feel the feelings behind this horrific thing that happened to you and be ready to do that and then we'll work the steps. That's not, mm-hmm. I, that, that's not, that doesn't, that's not how it lands for me here. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you so much, Leslie W., who else has a question for Sheila this morning? Star one, Tiny. Barbara E. Irene, Barbara E. Suji. Suji. Anyone Kathy else? Jo. Kathy Joe. Kathy Joe. Gotcha, Kathy Joe. Cynthia C. Cynthia C. Roz G. Roz G. Reggie O. Reggie O. Okay. Julie G. Is that who I'm hearing? Uh, Actually, Julie B. is in boy. Julie B. Gotcha. Okay, so I have Irini, Barbara E., Suji, Kathy Joe P., Cynthia C., Roz G., Reggie O., Julie B., and Sheila, you'll let me know when <laughs> you need to wrap it. We'll understand. Sure. Irini, go right ahead, please. Thank you, Leah. Thank you for your service. And Sheila, I really appreciate your share. Um, I, too, experience um, the same thing as you have. Um, I, uh, My approach is to always meet my sponsees where they are. And... Um, I have been experiencing um, that, well, I tell them not to focus on abstinence. The most important thing to me is actually connection. If you're connected, um, then you're able to um, get to abstinence or recovery. So my question is, what happens um, when you start to um, have different um, ideas from your sponsor that you have learned 
Um, and and what do you do with that relationship when they think uh, differently from you? I don't know what you're asking. Well, in other words, if I was taught from my sponsor that you have to put your food down, abstinence is first, and then work the program, uh, that's the only way to do it. But I'm experiencing where I meet the sponsees halfway. I mean, I'm sorry, I meet them where they are, and I have them focus on not being abstinent, but on being connected and doing the work and being open, and I'm getting results with that. Yeah. What what do I do with my relationship with my sponsee that I've learned differently? Well, here's here's the thing, and I I don't I actually don't want to keep this conversation going much longer with this because I think I've said what my experience was. I've pointed out where something is written in the literature, and I've shared my experience. So, I'll, but I'll, I'll I'll repeat this one more time because I just want to kind of correct in terms of what you said. When I'm saying I meet people where they are, if somebody calls me three days in a row and they haven't done the writing, the reading and the writing, I'm going to say, I don't think this is the relationship for you. I love you and I adore you. But the problem is when you're calling me and you haven't done the the reading and writing or you haven't made the outreach calls, because I have them write who they made their outreach calls to. And um, again, not because I'm a drill sergeant or a mommy or anything like that, but because I want to support you in doing what you say you want to do, which is have a different experience, and you only have a different experience by doing something different. And these are the things I've found from my experience with my sponsor directing me to do the very same thing, because I send the same email to my sponsor at night, right? If you don't want to do what I'm asking you to do, I'm not the sponsor for you. So I'm not one of those people who will sponsor people for years if they're not doing the work. And I've never, it's never, I've never had the experience where somebody is doing the work that they don't fall into abstinence within weeks, right? Um, it, it always goes that way because what they're going to do, if they're not ready to do that, they're not going to keep doing the work. I've never had anybody who keeps doing the work and stays in the food. It just doesn't, it's never, it hasn't played that way. And even as I looked at my 12 years of slipping and doing the step work, well, I clearly, I was letting go of the food. I lost 45 pounds, right? I haven't weighed 200 pounds since 1988 when I came in Overeaters Anonymous. So, um, you know, I just want to make sure I'm, I'm clear about that. And then, again, I don't want to keep banging the drum in this conversation. So I believe we end up with the sponsors we are to, uh, have in our lives, right? I think that one of the most valuable things that I've gotten from 12-step programs is this whole understanding that there are lots of ways to the center. One God, many paths, and lots of loving paths to that center place. So what my job is, what my responsibility is, is to follow the direction of the person standing in front of me, the person that I believe God put in front of me. And Thank you, Al-Anon. I don't run around in the world convinced that my way is the way to be doing it. And let me just show you, right? I grew up in a very dogmatic home with a father who had real clear ideas about uh, there being one right way to do things. And coincidentally, it was his way. That's no way to live. It's no way to be in the world. So uh, this is the experience that I have had. 
I uh, and I my sponsors. I I I don't have a situation where I'm not agreeing with my sponsors because anybody I'm not agreeing with, it would have fallen away. I had one sponsor who was really unkind to me and wanted to shame me about something when I had some health issues and was seeking out some support and he didn't he didn't think that was a good idea. Well, I lovingly let him go. I don't need any more shame in my life. And I certainly don't need it imposed upon me by somebody in a 12-step program. So, you know, falling away. Those who are to be in my life remain in my life. And the people that I am to sponsor, the people to whom my message will resonate and they will hear me, um, are the people that stay in my life as sponsees. There are lots of boats in the harbor. Just get in the boat. Yep. Thank you, Ibini. Barbara E., your turn. Barbara E., star one to unmute. All right, perhaps she had to step away. Sue G. Good morning, this is Sue G. Um, Thank you for this opportunity. Um, I really appreciated the talk. It was very unique. Um, My question has got more, uh, it's a little different slant, and that is what is your relationship with your sponsor as you continue to take people um, through the big book and sponsor other people. What is your connection um, with, you said you send your work to your sponsor. Um, what is it yeah. you do with your sponsor to continue? Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. I have, I have a wonderful, I have a couple of sponsors, right? So my one sponsor, though, that I've been with the longest uh, is, uh, she's been my sponsor for 12 years. She's actually blind. She's a woman my age who went blind in her 30s. She's amazing. She is the, the, the the greatest spiritual giant, really, that I've I've ever met. My my husband's a spiritual giant as well. Um, but uh, so I send her an email um, at night, and she reads it, you know, via a you know an audio. It translates the the the, the email into an audio thing, and I call her every day. The direction is that I'm to call her every day. So and we have a set time. You know, when people are calling me, they're calling me. At a at a set time, we're going to talk for 15 minutes, and that's because that's what a sponsor taught me, you know. And so, it, my call time with my sponsor is at 8:45, and if I call her at 8:45, we'll talk for 15 minutes. If I call her at 8:50, we'll talk for 10. If I call her at 8:55, we talk for five. Same thing I do with people with me. And if they, you know, if their call time is 8 o'clock and they're calling me at 8:10, and they do that, you know, four or five days in a row, you know, they obviously don't want what I have because they're not availing themselves of the time I'm making available to them. So again, I'm just getting information as we go along here, and uh, so that's what I do with my sponsor. We talk five days a week, and then she, uh, I am to be uh, doing uh, calls on weekends, just floating outreach calls, you know, connection calls. So that's what well, I do with my sponsor. Yeah, and then she keeps. Yeah, she keeps. I I have uh, you know big book, and we're doing you know we're reading the big book, and she's having me answer you know, questions she gives me. So I'm just reading and writing on a daily basis and reading those questions to her. So you're continuing to do with your sponsor oh, what you're doing oh. with your sponsee. You, you know what? She tell has a time for that. Yeah, tell me what your name is. Sue. 
Sue. The reason I do it, Sue, is I just love what keeps getting revealed, right? And we'll read the question, Sue, and then it might get into, you know, something that's going on in my life or something with my husband or, you know, what's going on in a health issue or whatever it is, right? It's not all, you know, just at, at this point in the game. As with my sponsees, I got one sponsee, we're on step 11. You know, so we've gotten past, now we've gotten past the, the meat and potatoes, if you will, of you know, step four and step nine, right? But then you have the exciting meat on the bone with the four parts of the, uh, you know, the big book 10 step that we are to be taking, you know, on a daily basis. And, you know, as things come up throughout the course of the day, it's not something you do at night, according to the big book. It's something you're doing throughout the course of the day, and there's four steps I can take when I get derailed, right? You know, just solve my problem. But so um, those are the conversations that I'm having with my sponsor. Yes, my sponsor is very generous with her time, and uh, and um, we talk for 15 minutes a day. She makes herself I'm available. very blessed to have that. I am Thank blessed. You. I am blessed. That's why I turn around, and I just like Bill talked about in Pass It On, you know, at the beginning of Pass It On in Bill's book, he says that a, a new guy in program, you know, came up to him and was just so excited, and he said he was just going on and on, waxing poetic about Bill and the program and how much it meant to him. And Bill says he, you know, he took that guy's hand and he just said, pass it on, you know, just pass it on. That's what we do here. It's the holy work we do here. Thank you. Yep. Thanks, Sue. Kathy Joe, your turn. KJ. Good morning, Sheila J. Thank you so much. It was absolutely wonderful. I've been looking forward to it since I knew you were on the calendar, and it's the best birthday gift ever. I just want you to talk about that story about the croissant. I just remember it, and it was really powerful, and I'd love you to share that. The croissant. Is this the bakery, the girl in the bakery? I don't know what the story I'm I'm lost, Kathy. What's the croissant story? Kathy, she's been up for 37 hours. You have to give yeah. her a little hint. Yeah. What's the story? What's Is this the, you know, my friend at the bakery, the writing project? Is that what you're talking I'm about? I'm so sorry. It it was at the OA convention, and it was something with your abstinence, and you told told a story about getting a croissant in the bakery or something like that. Oh, I'm sorry. We can pie. skip it. Yeah, it's the pie. Yeah, so I'm It's a, a pie. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Nope, nope. Nah. Okay, good. So I'm I my best friend from childhood they were twins they were thin twins right and their mother was southern and she loved to cook and I loved to eat right and I ate a lot more than her girls did and then I was you know largely estranged from those girls for a lifetime and again longer story we don't have time for but um this one girl uh named Linda she ended up starting bakeries right she again they had this wonderful mother who loved to, to cook and they learned how to cook and uh she wanted to open a, a bakery a pie pie store and so she opened one in Michigan. She's got a couple of them now. And then she and I got connected up because she wants to, to do a, a television project, right, a reality show, a positive reality show out of this bakery. So we teamed up on this. And we'll see if we get it off the ground. You know, it's funky, funky business, funky work. But um, but I, the point is, right, As over the last nine years that we've been working on this, I've spent a lot of time in that bakery, right? And... And she has, just like in dog shows, right, you have Westminster Dog Show, right, you have dogs that win best in show. Well, same thing with the the pie world, right? They have national, international pie competitions, and she has won best in show, right? So she has more than once. So she has pies that are literally, somebody has decided these are the best pies in the United States, best pies in the world. I guess, I don't know that they're international, but they're national, right? But, um, 
I've been in that bakery working as I'm doing the, the background work and stuff for the show, etc. And I've never had her pie. I've never eaten her pie. And, um, I mean, I've never eaten anything in that bakery. What, what can I eat in a bakery? The doily? I mean, <laughs> right? there's nothing for me to eat in a bakery. And and here here's the story Kathy's referencing, Kathy Joe's referencing, is I had, uh, this was when we started, this was in 2009, was November 2009, and I'd gone home and uh, was in this bakery, and it's, you know, it's beautiful, and she's, you know, really, you know, beautiful girl, you know, the blonde hair, the blue eyes, you know, the boobs, you know, she married the homecoming king, she's got two daughters, they were both homecoming queens. Everything this girl has touched has turned to gold, and I've watched her for a lifetime, and I know her family well. When I go home, I stay with her mother. I mean, you know, I'm firmly entrenched in her family, and I know her well and know her life, right? And again, I don't know what it's like for anybody at 3 o'clock in the morning, so, you know, I'm real clear about that, but but she grew up in a home that was radically different from my home and so is free in the world in a way that it took me a long time to get that kind of freedom. And I'm still not as free as she is, right? I mean, the old patterns, that's why I will be in 12-step programs doing what we do here for the rest of my life because the grooves run deep. But at any rate, so I'm home in November, and I remember I'd forgotten to bring my gloves, and we're in the bakery. And my husband is, is a really good sport. My husband, you know, eats sugar and things like that. And he, whenever, you know, there's something going on with sugar, I'll always have my husband eat it. And I'll say, now, am I missing anything? And he'll always say, no, honey, you're not missing anything. Don't sweat it. Don't worry. So we've gone to this bakery, and he goes in, and he's going to have this, windows, you know, this pie that she wanted. It's like cherry, cherry, berry, berry. I mean, she's got, you know, really cute names and their stories and, 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 and with the stuff. So my husband's going to have a piece of this pie. And he has a piece of this pie. And I'm watching him, and then he, you know, he said, and I said, so, honey, you know, am I missing anything? And he said, well, it is really good. And I just think, oh, man, you got to be kidding me. This is the best pie in the United States made by my best friend. We're going to do a show about it, and I can't eat this pie. And all of a sudden, I lost it. I just thought, I have got to have a piece of pie. And this was 2009. I was, you know, absent nine years at that point. I thought, I got to have a piece of pie. Gotta, I got to, got to, got to, got to, got to have a piece of this pie. And then the habits kicked in, right? The habits that my sponsor put in place in terms of making sure that I make those outreach calls, the meetings, all that stuff, right? But the habit of outreach calls kicked in. I thought, well, if I'm going to have a piece of pie, I probably should call somebody first. So I went out, tried to reach my sponsor, couldn't reach her, tried to reach another sponsor, couldn't reach her. And then I just started pulling phone numbers out and calling. And I reached this woman, and I never talked to this woman very often, but I just randomly called her, and she happened to answer the phone. And one of the reasons I don't call her very often, I love her, I dig her, but she never answers the phone. But I called her this day, and she answered the phone, because I remember I was standing outside this bakery, looking inside, and I could see kind of like the steam in the window, right? She's got a pink linoleum floor. I mean, and it's decorated, it's darling and cute. I'm watching everybody in there, and there's a woman who's, she's eating a piece of pie. She's got a fork in her right hand. She's got a a bite of the pie held aloft on the floor. She's got a cup of tea in the other hand. And I just am watching her and I'm thinking, eat the pie, eat the bite. Why are you talking and holding that bite up and put the teacup down? Just bury your face in the piece of pie, right? That's the mindset I was in when I was making the outreach calls. And I reached Wendy. She answers. And I said, Wendy, I said, I met this baker. And she knew, she knew, you know, the deal about the, the bakery and stuff. I pitched it at a meeting. 
And I said, Wendy, I said, I just, I just want to have a piece of pie. Please, please just tell me I can have a piece of pie. Mother of God, please just tell me, please. I just, I, I want a, I just, please, I just want a piece of pie. Will you please just tell me I can have a piece? And she paused and she said, Sheila, she said, you can do whatever you want to do. You're 3,000 miles from home. You don't have to tell anybody. You can do whatever you want to do. She said, but I'm just telling you, it's not the pie you want. It's the love. Go in and get the love. That's what you want. And we got off the call, and I went in. And again, because I remember I didn't have gloves on, and my hands were so cold holding on to that phone. But I was willing, willingness. And, um, and I went in, and the obsession was gone. It was gone. And I had a cup of tea. And, um, and it wasn't until four or five hours later I realized a couple of things. One, I don't like pie. I don't even like pie. And um, I like pie filling as long as it doesn't have fruit in it. You know, she's got like a caramel toffee pie. That sounds pretty good. But I don't even like pie. And um, and secondly, I don't want a piece of anything. And I, if I'm going to eat a piece of pie or start on a piece of pie before I follow it with five more. I don't want to do it in a bakery, in the middle of a bakery, with a pink linoleum floor and Frank Sinatra playing in the background and little girls with pink aprons. I don't, that's not me. I want to be alone in a room with the pie filling right? or the box of chocolates or the hot fudge sundae or whatever in a dark room with a flat screen, with HBO. That's what I want. I don't want to do it in front of a bunch of people. But see, I never would have gotten there had I not had the the requirements in place that my sponsor had put years before of those outreach calls so that when I really needed it, I I knew who to call. When I first got sober, because I had my AA, initial AA sponsor was talking about outreach help. But I remember I had a sponsor who wouldn't let me um, uh, put her number in speed dial. This was before cell phones, right? She wouldn't let me put it in speed dial. She said, because I want to make sure that you, she said, I don't want you putting anybody's number in speed dial. She said, I want to make sure that if you end up in trouble and you're at a pay phone and you don't have your, your little phone book with our numbers in it, that you know who to call and how to call them. So, um, you know, I it was just good good old training that kicked in, right? And that was, uh, and then the the obsession has never come back. I've worked in that bakery. I've been in there when people have come in because people will get in their car in New Hampshire and they'll drive to this bakery because they want to eat her pie in person. It's not enough for them to get her stuff from Williams Sonoma. They want to be there in person and meet her because she's a huge personality, et cetera, et cetera. That's why she wants to be on TV. But um, you know, people coming in and oh my god. You know, they're harried and they're, you know, their hair's a mess and stuff because they've just driven, literally, for 11 hours to have a piece of pie. Insane, right? And they come in and they say, oh, 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 you know, I've got to get a piece of pie. What's your favorite kind? And I say, oh, my gosh, I don't know. What's yours, right? And they say, well, I want to try this. And she's like, well, just settle down, settle down. It's just pie. But I don't say that, right? Get them their pie, serve them their stuff, right? And it's not my food because God has done the work. 
as I step up with open hands and that divine yes gift that I give to God, God will do the work. And part of that work is that I can do a television show out of a bakery and not not eat anything in the bakery. So that's that. Thanks, Kathy Joe. All right. Next question comes from Cynthia C. Thank you so much for your service, Leah. And Sheila, I <clears throat> I don't think I have words <laughs> today to say how much um, your share has meant to me today. And I've been looking forward to it all week long because it's right where I'm at. I'm working my fourth step. And so I guess I have two questions for you. Um, and I've been just like sitting here taking notes on my computer <laughs> um, because it's meant so much to me. Um, I've been sober for many, many, many years, for decades, um, and I have done a number of fourth steps, you know, in in AA, um, uh, you know, around my alcohol, around everything, just around transformation. I mean, you know, it, it applies to everything. I was abstinent for three years in a different 12-step food recovery program, which was great. I got married, entered into a new life, and I lost it. And so for 20 years, I've been in the food um, and not going to meetings. And I'm now back, and I'm abstinent for over a month now, which feels amazing. And it feels it's completely a gift from Hashem and for God. It's just completely a gift. It, it's, it's, it's not my will. <laughs> um, and I'm doing the fourth step, and I've actually taken time today, and I've taken work off tomorrow, so I could just focus on it without all the interruptions of my family life and work life. So I know this has to be a priority. So I guess my question is, I feel like when I've done the fourth step in the past, I had, I don't know, not 100 names, but maybe. Like I had so many names on it, and this time I'm doing it, and I feel like I have far fewer names, maybe more like 25 or 30, but like some real, maybe less than that actually, and just, but deep, deep resentments, um, but not the number that I've had in the past. And I guess, I guess I'm trying to get a range. Like, is that okay this time? Am I fooling myself? Um, um, you know, I guess, I guess I just want some help because it feels like, it feels significantly different than other fourth steps that I've done, but that may not be the wrong thing. And the other part, I guess you've touched on it. I guess I have a very good sponsor but I have issues of trust and hopefully that will come up, you know, while I'm doing the steps. I guess my part is like, I, I know I have a good sponsor. She's great. Like, I don't know. It's how do you trust your sponsor? And I guess you did talk about asking your sponsor how their connection is with their sponsor, but I don't know any words about that because, you know, my issue of course is fear and lack of trust. And that doesn't have to do with my sponsor. That has to do with me. So I'll stop talking and I would just love to hear your thoughts and experience. Thank you. Sure. So I have no idea what um, about, uh, you know, doing this right, doing this wrong. It, it certainly seems like a a, a, a positive thing and, and indicative of the process, especially with somebody who's got long-time sobriety, that you are ending up with less names on your, on your four stuff. That, that certainly makes sense. Um, I don't, you know, I don't know. Uh, here, here's the thing. I meant to throw this out when we started with the, the this question 
business. And we have a, a meeting here that we record every week where we have a speaker and you take questions and stuff. And pe- people, you know, people, I get quite, you know, people will call and ask questions. You know, I mean, people always want to hear my two cents. Or not, not, I'm not saying people don't always, but people will call and want to hear my two cents, right, which is probably about what it's worth. But the first question I always ask people when anybody asks me a question, like, you know, we've just heard all these various questions. The first question I have for people is, I say, what does your sponsor say about that? And 95% of the time, do you know what people say? They say, I haven't asked my sponsor. And I think, and I'll say, isn't that interesting? You're calling a stranger, right? I mean, you're calling a stranger. I mean, we're not strangers, right? We are sisters and brothers and in uh, in a, on a common journey here. But but isn't it interesting that the, the person in your life that you are talking to, that you are relating to, seeing in meetings probably, if you're, you know, sponsored, getting sponsored locally, which if you can, you should, I think. But um, I, I've just found that works the best in my experience. But, um, but at any rate, isn't that interesting that you're calling to ask somebody's take on something when you haven't discussed it with your sponsor? So anyway, so my, my thought would be, I don't, I don't really have any, you know, special insight to give you here that would be more valuable than anything your sponsor would would offer you. I don't know what's going on for you that you, you know, are going with this and you're still talking about deep presentments. Does that mean you need to take advantage of uh, uh, professional uh, services, right? Counseling services, therapeutic services. I know therapy has been a big tool of mine, very useful tool. And Bill Wilson was a, you know, big fan of it. And, um, you know, it's just been very, very useful for me. That was a very, very useful tool. So something like that, perhaps. I don't know. Maybe your sponsor would have some insight about that. Um, Is it about, uh, you know, really understanding your part, understanding the, the, or not understanding, if you will, not understanding the selfishness, the dishonesty? Uh, you know, usually it's easy for us to get the fear component when we can't forgive somebody. But you know, or is, is it that you're you're not you haven't really landed on that? Now, I, and I gave that basic letter that I have everybody do on anything. So let's say somebody you know gives me a, a four step with sixty names on it, and we have that sixty names on that that eight step list. I'll have them write that little four part letter to everybody, and then when they are dealing with issues with mothers, with you know family members spouses, ex-spouses, children, etc. Then I have them write a deeper, more in-depth letter. So that's just the the basic one they do is just that rudimentary one. And if it's, you know, I haven't forgiven, you know, Sally for what she did in the third grade or I haven't forgiven my eighth grade teacher, well, that we might be able to handle that with just the four-part letter, that basic four-part letter, kind of seeing the folly of not forgiving somebody when I want to be forgiven, so that's dishonesty, and seeing the folly of holding somebody bound and realizing that if I'm not forgiving somebody, um, I'm going to pay the price, as is everybody around me, because I will not be as available in the world. Why? Because my heart is shut down, because I'm judging you, and I've made a decision that you're doing this wrong. I've forgotten everything that al has taught me, right? So um, I just you know, really would, would encourage you to, to be in real conversation with your, your sponsor and see what her insights are uh, about what it is that might be kind of holding you up here, right? And and maybe maybe there's some deeper work that needs to be done within the, 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 the um, process of the, the 12-step work that we do here or maybe, you know, some some glorious professional services might might be useful for you 
I know it's been very helpful for me. Thank you, Cynthia, for your question. Roz G., your turn. Good morning. Thank you. Um, I don't remember your name, um, but thank you for your share. Uh, this I is Sheila J. Uh, Sheila. Sheila, thank you very much for this share. It's been really great. Um, I have a lot in common with you, and I hope you give your number afterwards because I have a question that's not related to um, eating, but something else uh, academically that maybe you could share with me. But what I just I wanted to make a comment on um, sponsorship because you've talked a lot about that today, and I have a really awesome sponsor, and I ask her questions, and we talk 15 minutes, just like you described that same pattern. Um, however, a few years ago, I had a sponsor, and you said don't say no to a sponsor. Who I had a sponsor who told me I couldn't. She didn't want me going to Al-Anon meetings anymore, that all of my character defects and all of my problems would be resolved through the steps. And I let her go. So I'm just kind of like wondering why you say, I don't say no to a sponsor. And with well, that, I pass. No, no, that's a good point. I haven't kept every sponsor that I've had. And I remember I had a, uh, I had a, a health issue, and I had a recommendation from a doctor that I was to start a major medication. And it didn't feel like the thing for me to do. And my general practitioner doctor didn't think it was the thing for me to do. And I had a sponsor tell me that, no, you need to do that medication. That's the thing for you to do. And I, I lovingly let that sponsor go, right? I said, you know, I, I really, I know that you love me and you care about me and you're thinking this is the right thing to do. But, and I didn't say this to her, but you're not an MD. And even if you were an MD, you're not my MD, right? Because I've had sponsors who were MDs. But um, but I'm not going to take medical direction from a sponsor. So I just lovingly let her go. We're still buddies. You know, that was 15 years ago. We're still, we're, we're really good friends, actually. It just wasn't the relationship for me. What I mean is with the sponsors that I have in my life now, right? Because I have, what, six sponsors, two Al-Anon and AA, and three sponsors in food programs. Um I, I, those people who are in my life, if they ask me to do something, I will do it. That's what I need. Thanks, Roz. Reggio. Reggie, you're... Hi, good morning. Turn. Good morning, there you are. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Thanks, yeah, it just took me a long time to get in here. Uh, Let's see. Uh, Sheila, uh, first of all, thank you so much for your share. The the love and forgiveness theme that you wove throughout was really, really wonderful to hear. And um, I just had this one question in the context of OA, because I know that you're in, you know, that you are in Al-Anon and that you came from uh, AA, but you said early on about chronic slippers that, uh, that you believe that that chronic slippers had, you know, one or two issues. One is that you're not done with eating, and the second is that you're not ready to feel the feeling. So, and I know the the feeling part, um, Bill W. started talking about, you know, long after he wrote the big book, the emotions. And so in in the context of step work and, uh, and OA, how do you, how, how do you, just I'm curious on any more information that you have or thoughts you have about 
uh, healing, feeling the feelings, healing, you know, healing through that. Uh, because like the two big parts that you said people usually drop out on are the fourth step. And in the big book, the fourth step says, you know, fact finding, fact facing. It's not this emotional thing. And then, you know, in some respects, the eighth and ninth is sometimes approached like that, but it's hard to get beyond the feeling sometimes. So just any any other information you have or, you know, wisdom that you have, I would appreciate. Yeah. Um, we say that fact-finding and fact-facing. There's a, a circuit speaker in Alcoholics Anonymous, he's got 55 years, and he talks about, for him, a, a, a big book inventory isn't a fact-finding and fact-facing. He says for him it's a lie-finding and a lie-facing. <laughs> I kind of think of that when I hear that phrase. Mm-hmm. Anyway, just in terms of the, the, the healing is, well, that's where it becomes so valuable, the relationship, right? So that time that we have, right? So that 15 minutes, so when somebody is is committed and they're doing the the work, right? So let's say they're they're again not feeling safe enough, and it usually it's something you know we're we're not conscious about this. This is unconscious stuff. I mean, again, this is stuff that's way above my pay grade. But just as I've observed here and paid attention and gone to a lot of meetings and just listened over the years, is um, that so much of the healing, so much of the holy power in a sponsorship relationship. It's just like in a good therapeutic relationship, right? Mm -hmm. You're going to bring transference into it. I'm going to start repeating the patterns in my sponsorship relationship that are the patterns that I have out in the world. And the great thing is, is if I'm working with a sponsor who's really making him or herself available to me um, on a daily basis, ideally, right, is I start feeling safe. And that when those patterns come up and I might see myself want to do whatever I want to do, which is cut and run. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not mouthy with sponsors. I've never mouthed off to a sponsor. Um, and, and I had a sponsor, who, a sponsee who mouthed off to me once pretty good. And I told my AA sponsor about it. She said, cut her loose, right? So I will have sometimes my sponsors will make decisions for me when I tell them if I have something come up with a sponsee, they'll say, no, nope, that's not what we're here for. Yeah, let him let her go. So I've you know I've never I've never done that. But there are different ways I can act out. Let's say oh I'll you know like I again I have this sponsor who's so generous with her time makes herself available and if I only will call three times a week right um, she'll kind of catch that and say gosh isn't that interesting you know you talk about how you feel still largely disconnected from your family because your family is, you know, hasn't sorted out a lot of their own pain and distress and they don't really go too deep in terms of relationship and conversation. And yet I'm somebody who's making myself available to you, Sheila, and you're not taking full advantage of it. What's that about? Right? So, so much of the healing is about um, doing what is asked of me, right? Making those outreach calls, doing that meditation, praying only for the knowledge of God's will and the power to carry it out, doing that uh, four-part process that it talks about on page 84 regarding the 10th step, so that if I do get derailed, however that happens, I can clean it up right away. You know, you only have to apologize to a Macy's clerk once or twice in your life, and you're not going to get bratty in a Macy's anymore because the line's too long. And it's really powerful what happens um, when when I do all this stuff as it's outlined in the book, that that's a huge 
component of how the healing happens is because I just did the work. And I did the work under the, the loving umbrella of um, of great sponsors who are committed in their own lives to the work, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Well, that's it for me. Right? And yeah, then but... I can get to that point where it, you know, when it talks about it, it's on, what is it, 133. You know, God, God wants us to be happy, joyous, and free. Well, that sounds like a mandate, you know? It's not bumper sticker stuff. It is a mandate. But that that happens if I'm doing everything that it talks about in that book. And most most people aren't. Most of us aren't. And I know that because I was 22 years sober when somebody pointed out to me that 10th step on page 84. And again, I've written about it, highlighted it, annotated it in numerous copies of my big book because I could go back and I looked in my other copies. And yet I'd never practically applied it. That's what I'm supposed to be doing on a daily basis. Four steps. And they're right there. Four steps. So, you know, this is this is really powerful stuff here. So if I will just keep being teachable, right, keep, uh, keep showing up and doing what is asked of me, right, the, the miracle will continue day after day after day. Yeah. Thanks, Reggio. Thank you so much, Sheila. Appreciate that. You're welcome. Julie B. Hi, this is Julie B. Can you hear me? Yes, very well. Great. Um, yeah, thanks so much, Sheila. This has been really enlightening. Um, I hope I'm not being redundant, but I was wondering, um, what what's your experience of learning to get to know and trust your higher power and, and let your heart be opened? Yeah. Well, I I mean, I was drawn to God from when I was very young. I was praying and writing in diaries from when I was about four years old because I just, I just, it was madness in my house and I just needed something. So it, it was always really easy for me to trust God. Now, what transformed in terms of my relationship with God is all of a sudden I started seeing God in a more loving way. I mean, I was afraid of God. I, you know, I was raised Catholic and I love Catholicism. I'll always be a Catholic girl. But, you know, I, one God, many paths. I mean, I love it all, right? I've I, I married a Jewish man. I, you know, I, my next door neighbor whom I love and spend a lot of time with, I run over there at any chance I can get and, you know, hold her babies, right? She's a young mother, Muslim, Muslim woman who has, you know, two babies and her husband's off at work and I go over and I hold her baby so she can get in the shower, Right. I live, you know, we, I live in a very uh, diverse neighborhood, and I like it like that. I mean, I love, I love it all. I celebrate it all. One God, many paths. You know, if I if I spend my focus on how can I love you and forgive you, I'm naturally going to want to serve you. Well, that's going to keep me busy for a lifetime. So um, that's where I really put my my focus and as I have focused on that and again through doing concerted work over and over and over again all of a sudden well I say all of a sudden I don't know let's say I think it really started taking a foothold in the last uh, five years I guess where I really understand how loving God is and I can you know we come here and we talk about you know creating your own conception of a higher power that's fine. Wow, I'm getting congested. Um, I can ha- I can worship any God I want to worship here. 
as long as I'm willing to emulate that God. That's the condition for me in my mind and what I try and teach my sponsor. That you can worship any God you want to worship here as long as I'm willing to emulate that God. Well, the God that I decided I wanted to worship was an all-loving God, all-inclusive, all-loving, right? Everybody's been invited to the party. There are lots of different way showers from the various different faiths of the world, but um, uh, one God, many paths, right? And as long since I wanted a God that just, you know, everybody's loved, everybody's forgiven, everybody's invited to the party, that's fine. That sounds like a pretty good God. That sounds like a good gig. Well, then I need to practice that. That's the same way I need to behave in the world. That means everybody gets forgiven. That means Joe doesn't get held bound. The Joes of the world, right? I, I, it's the because my eating disorder kicked in when I was young. There's so much growing up that I never did, and this has really been a process of growing up. And it's really a very grown-up thing to say that I want to have a loving God. So I'm going to take responsibility in my own life and behave in a loving way as well. It's all a process of growing up. And it's a very grown-up thing to put the food down. The most grown-up thing. And every fourth step that I ever did, I've ever done since, where I haven't been once I got abstinent and kept doing those four steps, of course they're monumentally better. Of course it's more powerful. Of course, of course, of course. Right? But, um, but I'm just glad that I was willing to be in this process and see what what would get revealed because I, I love this. This is just, there's nothing better in my life than 12-step programs other than God. But I really accessed God through my 12-step programs. It's a very practical work of loving you, forgiving you, and serving you. Thank you very much, Julie. Sheila, your choice. Would you like me to close now or would you like a final okay. invitation for a few more questions? Sure, sure. Let's 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 say three more questions. Okay, okay. let's say three more questions. Who else? Identify yourself. Malky. Malky. Hello? Madam. Madam, Malky, Madam, and who else? Gina R. Gina R. That's it. Thank you. Malky, go ahead with your question, please. Yeah, hi. It's Hi, it's Malky. I'm just so grateful, Sheila, to hear your qualification and your honesty. I am I'm literally floored. I'm thinking about everything that you said and that's so inspiring to do the step work for myself. And um and and I hear so much recovery, like true recovery, true work with yourself, with your relationship, with your history and your relationship, how you keep on giving of yourself to the program. And I'm just, it's not so much a question. I'm just inspired of your of your endurance and your patience with yourself and with others. And I'm, I'm just really like, I, I, want, I want you to know that it's, I, I am so like blown over. And, you know, hopefully I'll hear your phone number and I hope to reach out to you. So thank you 
so much for your honesty and for your time and patience. And it gave me a lot. Thank you. Oh, you're kind. You're Thank loving. You. What's your name? What's your name? Malky. Malky no. B. Yeah, no, I'll definitely give my number. And please, please reach out. Now, I know you guys are so committed in your vision for your program. And, you know, so you just have to be aware. I mean, I could get a boatload of phone calls. And plus, I'm sick. And I have a, you know, I have a writing deadline. So just give me time. I always return my phone calls. But it sometimes takes time. But I would love to be in touch. And and when Thank I forget you. all this stuff, when I forget all this stuff, Melky, you can remind me, right? Because that's what we do for each other, right? Because I forget. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Matt M., question, please. Hi, Leah. Can you hear me? Yes. Your question. Thank you, Sheila, for your service, and thank you for your wonderful qualification. Um, I have a question. Like, What do you do when someone's passed away and how to deal with the love and forgiveness of forgiving them when they've done a lot of things to you and you've done things to them? How do you practice love and forgiveness with that situation like that? Yeah, I had a sponsee. It was great. He he was really struggling with forgiving a, a deceased parent. And he, you know, I had him write the letter, right, the, the basic letter first, and then I had him write a long, drawn-out letter, which he read to me. And then we went and we read it. Uh, he read it at the uh, cemetery. Right? We went and sat there, and he just bawled like a baby as he read this letter. And it was just a beautiful, beautiful process. So that was how it, it shifted for him. I haven't had um, anybody, well, I guess other than, than Joe and the other the other man who had blessed me. They were both deceased by the time I, I got on the journey here. But um, And, again, all I did was write that, that basic letter uh, for my sponsor. And I can't remember, Matt, if they had me write a, a deeper letter at the time. I don't think so. But um, but here, I'll tell you, this is a good story. I'll tell you this story. This was really interesting. So, again, I, uh, uh, you know, I, I sponsor men and women because particularly here in Los Angeles, there weren't, especially with chronic flippers, there, it's getting, we're getting more men in program now. But there's, you know, I mean, the numbers just don't tilt in men's favor in terms of, of numbers and available sponsors. And because I sponsor slippers and stuff, and it made sense. My sponsor was fine with it. My sponsor's sponsor was fine with it. My husband was fine with it. I was fine with it, right? And my background is social work years ago. So, I mean, this this just felt very comfortable to me. But I've sponsored men and women, right? And as I said, uh, most of the people that I sponsor have, have dealt with some kind of sexual trauma. And I've sponsored two men, chronic slippers, who were um, uh, molesters themselves, right? And this one man, again, he's somebody who tried to, to be sober for a long time. And he actually, anyway, I'll skip that part of it. Okay. So he um, he had molested, you know, any number of people. And I'm listening to it on a four-step, yeah? And he had also molested uh, his daughter. 25 years before, he had molested a daughter. And... Um, and this was a guy, again, who'd been trying to get sober for about a dozen years. And he's, uh, you know, so he's a famous guy. So he's got, you know, all access to, to everything that you could want, and, you know, the, the love and the adoration and the fans and the this and that. None of that solves his problem, right? Because that just doesn't solve our problem, our heart problem. So, um, again, but he had molested this daughter. So, we, you know, we, I had him do all the stuff. And then we get to the daughter and he writes the, you know, the basic letter. And then I had him write an in-depth letter and of course he had never been in touch with that daughter hadn't been in touch with her and you know nobody when they've done that kind of thing is ever ever 
going to, you know, if you are somebody who molested somebody, you don't ever reach out to that person, ever, right? If they make an entree to you, you still don't say anything about it unless it comes up, right? That's what I was taught by my sponsor, and then I just know that based on, um, you know, my background in terms of, you know, working with trauma victims and stuff. So at any rate, so he, you know, this was a very traumatic experience for him to go through. So he wrote the basic letter, and then he wrote a long letter, and he was just crying about it. You know, but why, but why? And again, he was done. He was complete. He'd had enough pain, so he would do what I asked him to do, but he just, you know, I just don't understand why. I don't understand why. But don't, you know, turn off the thinker and just do, right? No try, only do. Follow Yoda's advice. No try, only do, right? So just do it. So he wrote the letter. Then I had him go and get a beauty, and he's, you know, I would see him every week at my home meeting. I mean, we were talking, but I also would see him every week at my home meeting. And I said, go get a beautiful card. So he did, and I said, copy the letter you wrote, the long letter, copy it in this letter, in a letter to your daughter where you're apologizing and taking responsibility for everything that you did, right? This horrific thing you'd done to her years ago. So he did, and then I said, put it in an envelope, right? Write your name and your address as the return address and then write her name, first name, last name, and then write care of you, your first name, your last name, and your address and put a stamp on it and mail it, right? So again, he had written this beautiful letter where he's apologizing to this daughter that he had molested 20 years before and this daughter now has grown and has children. He'd never seen his grandchildren, nothing like that. And he wrote the letter and sent it to her, but care of him with his address, right? So it's not going anywhere near her. So he's not going to make any kind of an entree to her, ever, right? But this is just for him to get complete and have the healing. We know there was healing going on because there were a lot of tears, a lot, a lot, a lot of tears. So he did it, right? So the letter comes to him. You know, he gets it two, three days later, and he's got this letter. Okay. He's staying sober, right, doing the deal. Two years later, his daughter, this daughter, let's just call her Jane. Jane reaches out to him. Let's call him Tom. She reaches out to him, and she's gotten sober in Alcoholics Anonymous and wants to reconnect with him and wants to get together with him for lunch. And he's, you know, he's just, you know, what do I do? What do I do? And I said, well, show up, right? That's what we learn here, show up. And I said, and he said, do I, do I say anything to her about that? And I said, no, 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 you don't. You don't. No, no, no. But just show up at the lunch. I said, but bring the letter. Just bring it. But don't say anything about it. Now, if she happens to bring up the molestation, then you can have a conversation. And you could bring out this letter that you wrote. Remember, this card that he'd written two years before with a postmark on it and a stamp, right? Canceled stamp and postmark. And sure enough, he shows up at the lunch. She does bring up the molestation, tells him she forgives him. He apologizes profusely, pulls out that letter, that he, that card that he had written two years before, sent to her, care of him, because under sponsor direction, he was not to send it to her, so he didn't. But she saw that two years before, when he finally got sober, he had apologized to her and was sorry for what he'd done. And it was a love fest. He's now met his grandchildren. He loves them. They love him, right? Like, that's what happens here, right? If I just keep 
taking the next step. Literally, right? And our 12 steps, isn't that funny? But just like, just one foot in front of the other. And be out of good ideas. I always tell my sponsees, be out of good ideas. You do not have a good idea in your head about how to do this. As I do not have a good idea in my head about how to do this. But I know how to ask for help. And then I know how to take take the suggestions or the directions or the butterflies <laughs> that I'm given and just do. Because I see over and over, this is just revelatory. And being be, wearing a size 6 or a size 4, that is so uninteresting. I mean, I'm glad I'm not 200 pounds anymore. And this is a program of attraction. And we do have, you know, the definition of abstinence from Overeaters Anonymous indicates that I am to be at a healthy body weight or on my way to a healthy body weight. And I'm glad that I am. I'm really glad that I don't weigh 200 pounds anymore. I'm very, very glad. And I do consider it in my own life, in my own mind, a personal responsibility to be at a body weight that will present itself as a program of attraction in Overeaters Anonymous. It's just, I can't make anybody else get there or be in that mindset. That's not my job. My job is to be loving and as I pay attention to working with others, and particularly that paragraph, to um, have expectations that people are going to do the work because it is the work that transforms and solves the greater problem, the only problem, the heart. You know, the eating and the over being overweight, that was just an attempt to try and deal with uh, the distress that I felt about being so disconnected in my life, you know? So, anyway. There it is, Matt. That's my little tidbit there. Thank you, Matt. Our final question for the morning comes from Gina R. Good morning, Leah. This is Gina R., gratefully recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. Um, thank you so much, Sheila. There's, um, as so many else others have mentioned, so many things that have resonated. And um, I need to confess that I did come in on the middle of your presentation, and so um, your qualification might give some insight to my question, and if so, I can certainly um, connect with you offline. But I am um, just coming off of uh, a year of working the steps and doing this program, and the clarity of thought and mind I'm getting and allowing myself to feel those feelings um, is showing me how screwed up my decision-making process has been over the years. And I, too, um, was the uh, recipient of um, the experience you described um, at the hands of um, a relative. And I know that one of the things I have done over the years is also escaped into work. And I hear you saying that you're a writer, and um, the image I'm concocting in my mind, or the delusion, I don't know if, it's, if this is accurate, and how you describe being able to sponsor and spending what seems to me like luxurious amounts of time in this program, which is what I want to do and what I think I need, um, just how you've managed your 
program and um, not managing or how you've carved out your time given the different aspects of your work life over your over the years and if you too ever suffered from workaholism I think I'm realizing that I have escaped into work to avoid feelings just as I have food I hope that's clear and not too big of a question thank you yeah, no, I, I don't. I'm not a workaholic. My father was, and I have a brother who is. And, um, yeah, and I think that's probably was a, a reaction to watching my my father do it. My father, again, had gone to school on the GI Bill and grew up very poor, and so he just worked like a dog. But the problem is is that um, uh, he didn't know, he didn't know how to, he knew how to work hard. He didn't know how to work smart. So, what I do is I I, uh, I work smart, not hard. And working smart involves um, getting clear about my priorities, right? Getting very, very clear specifically about my primary purpose, right? And um, and if I'm if I'm real clear uh, in terms of the you know the traditions that my primary purpose is to stay sober, stay abstinent, and help others to achieve abstinence. I mean, that's, you know, that's a, that's, (laughs) that's my, that's, you know, that's tradition five. That's my primary purpose. If I'm very, very clear about that, I work everything around that. I'll tell you what, I put my program in place and I work my life around it. I don't put my life in place and work my program around it. And it doesn't take a long time. So let's say I, I don't have four sponsees right now. Because I my sponsor had had me pull back a little bit because of something going on in my life, so I just have a couple of sponsees. But let's say normally what I do is I sponsor four people because I'm also not somebody who sponsors 27 people with the expectation that I'm going to be able to give them the time that they need, right? Um, so if I'm talking to people for an hour, Monday through Friday, I've got an hour. And then let's say I make three outreach calls, right? It might take me a half dozen calls to make those three outreach calls, reach three live people. Because what I have people do is three live calls or six message calls or any combination thereof. Just make sure if you're leaving a message, you leave your phone number twice. So that makes it easy for people to get back with you. But let's say that might take uh, 15 minutes, okay? So now we're at an hour and 15. And then I meditate. I'm a meditator. I do heavy-duty meditation. So let's say, you know, 40 minutes a day. So, all right, so now we're at what? Now we're at two hours a day, okay? And then, you know, I'm at those five meetings. So let's say that was a day that I go to one of the meetings. So that's, you know, that's another hour, three hours, right? So that's three hours. And then even if there was extra extraneous stuff answering the question, whatever it is, let's say it even bumps up to four hours, okay? Here's why. I'm thoroughly convinced because that's going to keep me protected. It's going to keep me safe and it's going to keep me clear about staying abstinent and the necessity of staying abstinent because first of all, I'm going to lose everything. And and I'm not talking about the money and property prestige. I'm not even talking about that nonsense. I'm talking about I will lose my way. I will lose my way home. I will lose my heart. I will lose access to my heart. Um, I stop play. I'll stop playing with my dog, right? I'll stop uh, doing yoga. I'll stop uh, writing. I'll procrastinate. I'll miss deadlines. I'll quit my writing class. 
I'll quit teaching. I'll quit. I just will lose everything. I'll stop, you know, connecting with God and praying and loving and living. I mean, I lose everything. So the trade-off is, am I willing to spend four hours a day, 20 hours, 25 hours a week to keep access to my heart? Well, for sure. Because here's what I also know. When I get into the food and I start binging, holy moly, four hours, that's nothing. I lose everything. I don't have any time. There's not enough time in the day to binge the way I want to binge. So it only seems like a lot when I'm unclear about the fifth tradition, when when I've lost sight of my primary purpose. And to stay abstinent, I, I don't know if I could do less and stay abstinent. I probably could. Probably could. And at some point, am I always going to be doing this for the rest of my life? I don't know. I don't know. I'll see what my sponsor's thoughts are. I don't know. But I do know that an old pattern of mine from childhood in reaction to my workaholic father is I always wanted to find the least amount of work I could do to get the greatest amount of benefit. Well, I don't want to do that anymore. Now I just want to be a, I want to be a worker bee, right? A worker among workers, just loving it all, right? Giving, receiving, giving, receiving, because there's nothing holy about giving if I don't know how to receive. And that's been the real journey for me is how to learn how to receive. I know how to give. I do the given thing very well. It's the receiving that it tends to be challenging for me. And again, that, that's no way to live. It's no way to live to not be able to receive. So, you know, breath, breathing is all about breath in, breath out, breath in, breath out. So it's just been that, you know, that glorious, glorious process. And in, because I really believe the doctor's opinion and I really believe Bill and what he talks about in his story, you know, I can only eat on a lie today, right? That's the only way I could eat is on a lie. And there are three lies. It's not going to bother me this time. Second lie, it'll bother me, but I'll be able to control it. But the third lie is it doesn't matter. My life has no value. Well, I'm real clear that I'm not going to eat on either of those first two lies because I know that sugar will always bother me. And I know that I will never be able to control it. It's not like I can start it on a Sunday and finish it on a Thursday. It doesn't go that way. But that third lie, that I have no value, that I'm not important in the world, that God doesn't love me, that you don't love me, well, that's the lie and the father of lies, and I get it now. So uh, I don't ever have to participate in that again. And as I do this work on a daily basis, working smarter, not harder, because I have the fifth tradition down, I have my priorities in order, and I work my life around it, everything happens so much easier. And my my work life is so much different than my dad's. And my dad was a holy, devout, loving, good Catholic man, a God-loving man, God-fearing man. But he did not know how to receive. And I will not make that mistake. It's just in giving in the 12-step programs, the, what I have received, what I receive in doing that, is just blown my mind, right? And I, as I said, you have given me everything. So I owe you everything. So 
so I will give it freely. Now and always, right? At least for today. At least for today. Thank you so much. Thank you, Gina. And, of course, thank you so much, Sheila, for your generous heart, your generous time this morning and sharing your journey, such a message of hope and possibility, what's possible as a result of these 12 steps and the transformation that is so freely given us with the work that we do. Thank you, Sheila. I'm going to close now from page 164. I will let you know share ID for today is 9963-9963 for this recording. Our book is meant to be suggestive. Phone number? Hold on, please. Thank you. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right, and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is a great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then.